Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who... Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum, the cunts, the dogs, the filth, the shit. Here is a man who stood up. Here is... And then it just kind of trails off. Yeah. Because we're in the mind of Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro. Yes. I thought about doing the, you know, the very famous, like, you talking to me, but everybody does that. So yeah. figured change it up. I didn't know that that's actually a big, the Clash use it in one of their songs. The Clash? Yeah. There's actually two, there's a couple songs that they wrote that they use uh, the lines from Taxi Driver. Like, uh, like the you talking to me or no, that like that or like, like this. Well, when kinda, he talks about the rain coming down and washing away the filth, washing the scum, away the shit the, of New York. Yeah. Somebody's got to come in here and clean this place up. <laughs> yeah. Tell me your real thoughts, Travis. Uh, he does. <laughs> and that's, that's the point. <laughs> How you really feeling there, man? Yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, letting us in on people's thoughts, uh, I'm going to ask you to let us in on people's thoughts who may not know the big news. seems like you've got a lot of news to offer us in, uh, your Dude. big life updates. Yeah. Life is happening fast. Uh, yeah. Engaged. So, um, to me, yeah. Uh, our wedding will be beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just like Leonard Bernstein's. Yeah. Um, very no, much so. To the lovely Jasmine. I, uh, I I asked her to marry me, and she thankfully and willingly said yes. So, um, yeah, that was exciting. I mean, it's like one of those things where I we've... It, it's nice now that I don't have to introduce myself to strangers as her lover. Um, you know? You didn't just say you were her boyfriend? <laughs> no, I thought it was too... Like, that's too flat. <laughs> That's too juvenile. This is too high school. I think about the third time I did it, she asked me to stop doing it because she said it's like it seems like there's more than one. Oh yeah, when she introduced you to her grandpa. Yeah, and I said no. That was kind of the final straw. Lover. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Shook his hand. (laughs) Yeah, I had to look up. I had to look up the definition of lover or how it was uh, uh, taken in. It's kind of very like. I don't know, like intimate connotation. That's right? what I was thinking, but I guess that some people think it might imply that you're like uh, oh, the like main it's squeeze, a, like as opposed, it's you know, an affair thing. Yeah, kind of like there's more than one of one of me. Like it could almost mean like oh, mistress. Maybe not mistress. I'm but Jasmine's like, mistress. Yeah, like uh, multiple girlfriends or boyfriends. So yeah. Um, no, now it's nice to actually say like you got a fian- you know she's she's my fiance. So I say you upgraded. Uh, titles right there yeah well and i'd always say like it's it's really hard when you go in and it's like how do you tell someone you think this is a person you care about most in the world but she's just your girlfriend you know like yeah okay like i'm sure you know my gf yeah like we have a kid together and she's my girlfriend so um she would commonly say baby mama which i tried to stray away from (laughs) yeah (laughs) Like that gives it even worse. I feel like that's worse than lover. Yeah, <laughs> I always thought lover was a good one. My uh, part—it's it's, kind—it's got like a little bit of like upper class to it, but yeah. it's still like kind of like sus. 
you know? It feels like a Casanova thing, right? Yeah. Like, like there's a bit of romance to it. Yeah, but also... Like, oh, my lover. Like some distrust behind it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like some part, nefariousness. Yeah, exactly. And I th- that's where she would, uh, you know, she definitely would... She'd blush, but then she'd kind of like, hey, like, let's not tell people that and mm-hmm. like it's already too late <laughs> like that's how they they know us but now it's fiance and it's uh it's fantastic i mean we're both really excited and you know i think the way that we we our relationship is and i think it's kind of how i am with a lot of people not to say everyone's my fiance but you know like we're, we're so close together that it just feels like it's it was a next progression that needed to happen mm-hmm. so we're, I mean, we're incredibly excited about it. And we're, we're planning and, um, yeah, I mean, it's just been, it's been, it's been a, it's been a fun, fun week. You heard it here first folks. Uh, Parker wedding in April of 2024. Ooh. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you guys Everyone, move quick. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, I feel like I, and I was going to interject this whenever I could, but a uh, partner would probably be like a very neutral that's term. what that's what see now you said neutral and i'm like i want people to know that there's passion behind what i'm saying oh you don't want it to be too rice cakey i got yeah you know what i'm saying like you say partner everyone like that's that is the that's the that's the lame or easy version to say more than a girlfriend but less than a, a, a wife mm-hmm. you know yeah or, or, and i'm always always like i i like it don't get me wrong it's a safe way to go when you go into a conversation with someone. Right. But it also lets them know that you're lame. It's very, <laughs> you know, it's very politically neutral, <laughs> yeah. but you're also kind of a fucking well, square. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, that's not me. Yeah. And, you know, like you're like, hey, we have a kid together. Like you want a little bit more than just a partner because now everyone thinks you guys are eating TV dinners in front of the TV on the couch, you know, at six o'clock at night and then go to bed at eight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a smooch and then you turn over. It's like, no, there's more going on. And the kid suggests that. So, um, you know, it's I always thought it was good. But now it's fiance and fiance is way more appropriate and it won't embarrass her. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait for it to progress into uh the old ball and chain, you know? <laughs> no, she that I don't I don't ever think that that would uh that that would occur. She's she's awesome. I mean, she's she's definitely supportive of me and, you know, it was I I'm a very fickle person when it comes to relationships. So like, you know, my network, I like people, but to get into the, you know, this is what's going on, I think, at least for me, you know, it takes a lot and I like to think I'm making the right decision and with her, it's like a thousand percent. Yeah. Well, you better be making the right decision. Otherwise, you're going to be in the doghouse. <laughs> oh, arf, arf. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We better fucking stop. <laughs> yeah, we'll cut that out in post. Uh, debatable. <laughs> So, uh, I don't really have any movie news or anything. Yeah, so, not a lot. It's the time of the year. Yeah, it's January. It's yep. like the, the dry season. Happy New Year, by the way. Hey, Happy New Year. Yeah, I feel like uh, I'd be remiss to mention that. I'd also be remiss to uh, not mention that my name is Kyle, by the way. And my name's Mac. I am glad I remembered to squeeze that in there, because sometimes I just straight up forget that we need to say our name so people know who we, we got, are. I think we got to hook in with the lover talk. I Probably. Yeah, you know. If they haven't shut us off by then <laughs> yeah I, I don't think they're gonna be going away after that hopefully not uh so i figured we kind of just jump into the film discussions because i know we it. have a few questions too yeah i was about to say i mean i try to get the questions in but also i think we got at least one meaty topic if not two yeah 
there is uh there's a good chunk that we can discuss but uh speaking of chunk uh there's a good chunk of uh leonard bernstein's life that we get to yes. uh, observe with this movie from bradley cooper called maestro it's about uh you know some music or some shit (laughs) you want to take this one you want me to do taxi driver or you want to do taxi driver i'll do this one you recommended taxi driver so you can have I'm, yeah. you can have that okay one. okay even though that's my favorite scorsese but you can have it. <laughs> yeah that's well fun. that's why I, listen man this is like the food on the like here you go it's your chance to switch it ah uh, you know i i don't need any more food yeah even though i'm actually very hungry right now um <laughs> so maestro this is a 2023 biographical romantic drama film uh directed by bradley cooper written by bradley cooper and josh singer pretty apt last name uh, and it stars Bradley Cooper as uh, Leonard Bernstein or Bernstein. I might interchange them here and there. I feel like the movie called him Bernstein. I think so, too. So I might try to pronounce it that way. Uh, and it follows uh, him, famous composer from real life. And kind of kind of does a little bit of um, what priscilla does in that it kind of focuses more on like his relationship with his wife and kind of you know a bit more of like the stuff around his music and like his other relationships with people is a little bit more ancillary where it's like mostly focused on him and carrie mulligan who plays felicia montalegre hopefully i pronounced that okay yep and uh is a pretty tight-knit look at their whole thing going on yeah and uh yeah we watched this movie it's one of those where we're kind of getting like a trend. I don't want to say trend, but it's like a very artistic look at a real life person. I feel like we've been getting a lot of movies like this recently with like Blonde and Oppenheimer, just different things where we're taking like this real life person and we're kind of putting a more artistic lens on them and, and <laughs> focusing on one very specific aspect about their life um, that may or may not result in a good film so we can get into it uh top level what are your thoughts on maestro um yeah i i agree i you know i i did i read a couple reviews on this thing just to kind of uh i don't even want to say help cement i just wanted to know what other people thought i do agree that there are these biopics that are coming out that we are looking or solely focusing on a certain aspect of someone's life and then trying to tie in themes and metaphors into some of the actions that are going on or the relationships and maybe like what they reflect outside of the, out of their lives. Um, and it, 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 it's a, it's a weird way to go about a plot, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, with that being said though, uh, I don't with this one and I don't know much about Leonard or Lenny. I think they call him. Yeah. Probably just call him Lenny. Um, to avoid the whole Bernstein, Bernstein. I think it's Bernstein too, uh, but I don't want to offend anyone. Um, so, you know, it's it's a very interesting take on this guy who's just a music composer that has a very uh, lavish lifestyle. and Very eccentric. Very eccentric, leading almost like a dual life. And it's it's kind of, it was, it was a little bit hard to get a read on who knew what and what was going on in terms of uh, what you thought of Lenny mm-hmm. and the relationship that he has with Carrie Mulligan throughout the film is um, I don't know if it if it's reflective on what's going what was going on in his life or what was transpiring you know 
like some of the time, you know, and we'll talk about it with Taxi Driver, but some there's a lot of things going on in the film that help you get a better sense about how he is internalizing or taking things in. Mm-hmm. With this one, I never really felt that there was ups and downs. It was more about the no. the dichotomy of their relationship. And I would say um, kind of, I mean, essentially how what he was doing was affecting other people, but you never felt that there was ever too stressful outside of like moments. No, and I think that that's, that's kind of the thing with this movie is that it feels... Like it wants to focus on his relationship with his wife, but then at the same time, the movie treats his relationship with his wife as something that's kind of out of focus. Like it's it's not really something that they delve too much into. It's just a very surface level viewing of it. And I yeah. feel like it to kind of like lead into like our thoughts on this movie. I kind of had the opposite problem with this film that I had with Blonde, in that Blonde to me was almost way too tumultuous for its own good in that every single scene was just miserable conflict arising from no organic source whatsoever. Like, (laughs) things would just happen to make Anna de Armas in that movie just cry her eyes out. Or naked. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. basically, right? (laughs) Crying and naked oftentimes in the film. Uh, Whereas with this movie, it's very much like it kind of meanders through different periods of Leonard Bernstein's wife, having us focus a little bit on, I say a little bit, but it's basically like the spine of the movie, uh, his relationship with his wife. But then it doesn't really feel like there's much that comes from that in terms of character relationships or a dynamic. It feels quite repetitive, honestly, in the way that it handles it in that, it doesn't really feel like we're getting much from it. It feels like we're just kind of watching it. And then, you know, Leonard Bernstein just gets his his hand. He gets a slap on the wrist for hitting on guys every <laughs> single time that he does it. And then, you know, it, it does result in, like, them, like, taking a break from each other. But then they kind of come back to each other. Yeah. And it doesn't really feel like I, I'm trying to figure out the purpose of this movie. And I don't quite see it because, I, to me, it feels very muddled and meandering. I I took it a different way in in the sense that uh, at, because he's living this dual life, Carrie Mulligan was the medium in which we get to see how his actions affect the world around him. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if maybe it would affect his music or, I mean, if it's just simply as affecting her. And there's a couple times where they had some deeper conversations that I felt like we're supposed to take away a little bit more than what they were discussing, but it never felt like because of what he was doing, you know, and he swung both ways. I think that's fair to say, right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So he makes it very clear that he's at the very least bisexual. Yeah. And at the very least, I guess it was at a time too, because I read a little bit on the wiki on this. Cause I was, I was like fascinated by like what was going on. Cause he's a fun character. You know, he's very, he's eccentric, but I mean, he, he's a, he's, he's, he's a smart, witty dude, you know, and he's a fun guy to like see going throughout the day to day and Carrie Mulgan almost had to play like the, and she wasn't even like the straight man in it, you know, not, not sexually, but like, as opposed to their personality, like they were both really fun in the film. And I thought that maybe her purpose was more to serve as him as he, he puts on all these faces and it's at, 
her expense, mm-hmm. you know? And I thought at one point, by the time we got to the Thanksgiving dinner, where they had to talk about how, and all of a sudden it just turned into his music and him being a genius and affecting and doing this and that and leading, you know, and I was like, I, are we are we talking about music here? What are we talking it's, it about? It seems very unfocused to me. And right? I, I, to, I think maybe to some extent because he was a little unfocused as a person. Right? It did feel like so. And maybe maybe that's what they try to emulate with the way that this I, film was structured. That's what I'm talking because about. Because Leonard Bernstein, life. it seems like he has, you know, and I don't want to be reductive about it when I say this, but like a very ADHD personality just when it comes to like who he gives his attention to and what he focuses on. Yeah. So then the movie kind of feels like that where you're watching it and you're, you're just kind of like following it from like his perspective, but also very much from Carrie Mulligan's perspective where like it gets unfocused. It gets kind of confusing. You're not really sure what you're supposed to gain out of it. And you're not entirely sure like where it's going or like what the purpose of it is. That's what I thought the linear plot line was for. And you can see, it's almost like you have the baseline, like if you're looking at an audio bar, you know, and that baseline just plays out, and then you could see the radio waves going through it, and you can see these peaks and valleys of his life as she kind of rides that baseline of this is where we should be at, mm-hmm. and we get to see how he is just drifting up and down along this baseline with no true, you know, he's got no true baseline of himself. So I think that's where, like, I think we're kind of saying the same thing with it being out of focus a little bit was the right. fact that he's got so many different faces that he puts on that he doesn't even really know who he is. But we never... It, it almost... Like, he comes to him... I, I think the movie ultimately resolves that he loves himself for that. You look at someone... I mean, I, I hate to keep going back to Taxi Driver, but I think this was a <laughs> decent pairing with what's going on. Also, uh, Martin Scorsese produced this movie. Yeah. And uh, was at one point supposed to direct it. Yeah, did you, uh, Spielberg saw a cut of uh, A Star is Born, and mm-hmm. that's when he was like, hey, we want you doing this. Yeah, he wanted Bradley Cooper to direct it after he saw that movie. And apparently, like, Bradley Cooper said he, like, loves Leonard Bernstein from, or from, I, and I don't remember what, like, he saw him when he was very young, and he said he was influential in his life, so he just wanted to be a part of it. Sure, Leonard Bernstein loved a lot of people, too. <laughs> I thought it was smoke up my ass for, well, maybe not the right choice of words, but, uh, from what Bradley had to say about it, but uh, um, you know, like the, the in, in Taxi Driver, you can kind of see with that descent. Whereas this one, he embraced it. So yeah. I I feel like <coughs> excuse me that played a little bit of part into the film, but there isn't. I don't know what you would consider the plot of this film besides it just kind of looking at like almost uh kind of fly on the wall. About this man's life. Fly on the wall. And I mean, it. I, I'm glad that you brought that up because it's not necessarily something that I really made like too much of a connection to is that the way the film is structured is very much in line with the way he was behaving in the film. Mm-hmm. Really, the problem with me in relation to this movie is that I really didn't get much out of it when it's structured like that, when it's presented in that way. And... I don't know. There's just some things that I really couldn't connect with in this movie. I had kind of a hard time with it. Really? Yeah. It's interesting. I think that the the best and the strongest scene slash scenes in this movie are when Carrie Mulligan and uh, Bradley Cooper meet in the film. And they, they meet at the party and they go to the stage and they kind of have that back and forth banter. Yeah. Because I, I genuinely believed their connection. I believed that they were two people who 
found the curiosities and the wonder in each other really fascinating. And I really like the idea of, you know, Leonard Bernstein is so infatuated with other people. He doesn't want to be alone ever. He always wants to be with somebody, even if that means like kissing them, if he's a little tipsy, you know. But to me, with those scenes, it kind of told me right off the gate that like he wasn't necessarily like just physically attracted to her. Like he was way more into her personality and her dynamic with him than anything else. Yeah. And you can kind of see throughout the film, like her sort of trying to play catch up with that, but he is just way too far into it to where like he kind of takes off and he kind of leaves her in the dust. And that's kind of like the strongest part of this movie for me. And that's the part I connect with the most. It's like, okay, I can kind of see like the through line of what they're doing here mm-hmm. with uh, him just kind of like going and doing his own thing constantly. And like her just doing her best to try and catch up with him. See, I think that the Thanksgiving scene, uh, they talk about, and that's actually helped me out. She might've been uh, associating music with love or using music as a metaphor. Cause she, she starts you know, yelling at him that he's such a musical genius and that he can't he can't tame it and he flaunts it in front of all of us. And I, I think it's actually a metaphor for you have all this love that you love to, that you can give and that you can take in with people and that you can express and you leave all of us behind as you just kind of flaunt it around because not all of us can pour our hearts into so many people, mm-hmm. you know. And I the reason why I bring it up is because when they talked about it, it was so... Not not much of the music had been being discussed, you know. Like that's no. one of the things that like intrigued, maybe not intrigued me, but kind of I was like, I don't really get is that we're looking at this guy's life and he and being this like significant composer, and yet we only touch on the music here and there, you know. And you get the, like one major scene of him composing like a really big grand piece, and it's like a one shot, and it's technically very impressive. It's I thought that I really like that scene. I'm yeah. not gonna lie. Like, that scene, I, isolated by itself, I think is is really well made. And it's weird that the culmination is up to that point because you'd almost say that that could be the climax of the film, mm-hmm. and it it kind of feels off with everything else going. It's on, a little disjointed, right? Because we're talking about so many different things, and I, I'm just curious if the message here was his music was really played out because of his love that he was able to give, and that's why. Our, you get into a lot of the we're not going to talk about you being you know bisexual, but like we're gonna we're gonna mask it with your what you're able to do mm-hmm. with you know your freaking wand. Yeah, sorry, Gideon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, he's gonna care about Leonard yeah. Bernstein. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just thinking, I don't know what the synth, the uh, conductor waves. I'm sure it's got some fancy name. It's probably Latin. Um, yeah, it's called a stick. Yeah, God in America. Damn it. You fucking commies. <laughs> you little artsy fartsy French boys. It's <laughs> kind of how I felt when I was watching this thing, and I'm like, I wonder how other people are taking this in because I could see a certain portion of America like throwing up at points of this thing. Right. Um I you would not catch a, a like fifty percent of the population watching this movie in America. Not a gay music conductor. <laughs> hey, he's bisexual. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you'll get like sixty five percent of the population. Uh that's how that's kind of how i was soaking it in i thought that they were doing a little bit of the masquerading and it's i think it is tough though when you with like this subject matter and you have such a polarizing character i think that the 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 strength of the movie needs to be focused on bradley cooper and carrie mulligan uh their performances and 
a little bit of their relationship mm-hmm. and kind of that that wonder that they both have in each other and how much they they actually do care for each other even though at points it seems like they both hate each other you know or you can't really tell is he still into her you know and mm-hmm. um is there still feelings there like both ways or is it just like a one-sided thing yeah is and, it just completely her trying to keep up with him in every single aspect of their relationship and you know i don't think at, at points it was but at, i mean towards the end there like he he took off with tommy moved to northern california which i wish they would have explained a little bit more because they were separated right and i read this mm-hmm. in the in his wiki bio jasmine's probably like throwing up right now hearing me say that because wiki is totally unofficial but whatever um he actually moved in with tommy for three years like when they were separated in the late 70s mm. And you know when he's doing coke and he's like, oh, I'll give it to everyone. Let me Very do casually your... doing cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> let me, I'm serving everyone the coke, you know? Yeah. And uh, an interesting scene is he goes in to call his daughter and he shuts the door. And I didn't know if it was a metaphor for coming out of the closet or if it was a bigger like... They always talk about how he couldn't be alone, and that was like you could. That's yeah. probably the first time. He'll he's even ever be really... sitting on the toilet, and he has to have the door open to talk to someone. Yeah, and here he is in this room seeking isolation to talk to his daughter. So it's probably the long, as lonely as he's ever felt in his life. Yeah. And well, there's the idea too that you can surround yourself with so many people, but you can also be in such a, a bad mental state that you are just metaphorically alone. Yeah, and that you know so. Um, you know, I, I, I really, I, I gleaned more off the performances of this film than I actually like of what was going on. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's funny thinking about it. Cause I was like, I think when I watch films, I super Mario brothers comes to mind. Um, interesting poll, but okay. I look at the film and what it was intended for, or what are the strengths of it? And I kind of put it in like an isolated area where, <clears throat> and that's how my ratings reflect stuff. Um, mm-hmm. What did I like? What did I like the most about this, or what was the strengths of this film? Like, and some films don't even have strengths, but like this one, the the character. Some I films mean, are all strength, like Fateful Findings. Some characters, <laughs> uh, you know, like this thing. I mean, it's just just tour de force. And I thought, I, I, the plot's not all that great, but like, you know, I, I really do think. I mean. Leonard Bernstein's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Bernstein's fascinating, and what was going on was fascinating. It's just it's interesting, like what you could have did outside of what they did, you know? Right. Um, I think a good, at least to kind of like paint my perspective of how I feel about this movie. Mm-hmm. I think a good comparison to kind of pull is uh, Priscilla, that also See, came I've out this year. I've not seen that. Uh, I think that one is kind of a good one to compare this to because Priscilla is very much solely focused on Priscilla Presley's relationship with Elvis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously it's kind of a different case because Priscilla Presley herself is kind of an iconic figure. You know, you could say her name and people will know who you're talking about for yeah. the most part. Uh, but. That movie is very much just a simple, straightforward focus from her point of view of like her relationship with Elvis, her time at his ranch, uh, the kind of like isolated feeling that she felt, kind of being robbed of her childhood, essentially, you know, because she was 14 when they met. Yeah. Um, you know, not being able to live in her teenage year- years and revel in those, like, you know, more, most teenage girls would have been able to. Yeah. So. 
I, I really, uh, you know, that movie I kind of have my issues with as well, but that movie to me is a little bit more focused in what it's trying to do because you're you're also gleaning other stuff from it, like how Elvis was as a person too and like mm-hmm. his relationship and uh, just kind of like the state he was in at the time, but it's all from the lens of Priscilla Presley. Yeah. Whereas this one, I don't know, to me, and I get it, maybe the intentions there of like, you know, matching with the energy of Leonard Bernstein, but I, the unfocused nature of it, it was not helping me connect with a lot of what was going on at all, especially after when they first initially get together. It, yeah, it it, it kind of takes me out of it. I like a lot of what is is technically happening in this movie. Like it looks great. Uh, you know, a lot of the cinematic choices and the visuals are cool. Like it's one of the better black and white movies, at least like in that first 40 minutes that mm-hmm. I've seen, like it, it feels like they actually filmed it in a way where it was meant to be filmed in black and white. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, there's just different things about this that I just really could not piece together for my, like, I don't know. It's hard to explain. Cause like there's the unfocused nature of it. And then there's a little bit of the performance stuff too, that I kind of have an issue with. And you then like there's the performances. I didn't hate them. I do. I really like Carrie Mulligan. I think that she knocks it out of the park. You don't like Lenny. Eh, to me, it, I don't know if I want to say overacting, but it really felt like he was just kind of see. I don't even want to say trying too hard because he does a good job and he it's okay. But like there were some points where like it kind of took me out of it. Like there were some, there were some points where like the way he was carrying himself and the way he was performing and the way he was talking and I you know I'll admit I don't really know how Leonard Bernstein see, sounds. That's the that's the difference I think. But. I don't know. To me, it it felt like I was watching Bradley Cooper playing Leonard Bernstein than I was watching Leonard Bernstein. See, I had the exact different maybe, and I you know that's probably the difference in how we viewed it Mm because I I got immersed with what was going on and what he was doing. Yeah, and I thought, I mean, I was like, this is fun, and I don't know enough about the guy, so all I can do is take it at it, you know, face value, if Mm. you will. So like, if there's a preconceived notion, or um, I would say. I mean, if there's any discrepancy in it, and from a couple of the reviews I read from people that have either met him or seen him, they said Cooper did really well. Yeah. Um, like, I could see it being like, oh, that's too flamboyant or that's too out of left field. Like, he took a guy that's kind of eccentric and made him exceptionally eccentric, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but that was the difference. I didn't I didn't really have that. I saw, I mean, I, I took it for face value, and I was like, man, if that's how that guy was, like, he like absolutely loved life, you know, and like right. what he was doing. Um, but conversely though, I could see if, if you're not buying into that, how it would take you out of it. Cause I mean, we're essentially with him 75% of the film. And I don't think it also helps too that. I think Carrie Mulligan is given a little bit more to do in terms of variety. So there are scenes where, you know, yeah, she, I mean, she, she, you know, she has to kind of like play up with him, like catch up with him, like, you know, match his energy when they first meet. And then like, as the film goes along, you kind of see her struggling with their relationship and kind of like dealing with the fact yeah. that like he, you know, likes to get a little too friendly <laughs> with people. Dude, she's like, yeah, I don't, I like their relationship. I liked it. Cause I took it from a, how would you feel? I mean, like, you know, you're Carrie Mulligan, you're married to this man. He's a genius. You're absolutely in love with everything he does. And all of a sudden you find out he's swinging both ways and you have to compete with not only women, but men now. Mm -hmm. Like you're going into everything in a sense of like, 
God knows what he's going to do. Like she just, I think she just got worn out just being with him. Yeah. And it was his frenetic energy that, like you said, catch up with. It was just holding on to. Yeah. You know, and like that first, and it's obviously the, the honeymoon stage of when they are all just running around and, and happy. And then all of a sudden you get into the settling down and he doesn't, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And then you can definitely see that the further it goes along in the film, like kind of like that, that wearing down on her. And, yeah. and kind of like whittling her down to the point where like, you know, and even when they get back together, like, you know, they do a good job of like, the, you know, how they handle the cancer stuff and portraying that in a way that feels respectful. Uh, whereas like Cooper playing Bernstein, Bernstein, however it's Lenny. pronounced. Lenny. Thank yeah. you. Uh, it, for the most part, and there are certain scenes where like it variates and it changes, but you know he's being himself he's being that character who matches that energy all the time of like i just love people and i'm gonna show people that i love people and i'm an eccentric happy guy and i love life and i'm very passionate about everything yeah and you know to me it it tells me that carrie mulligan at least had a little bit more to do in terms of acting she had i think there's you know she she (laughs) When you think she had the most emotional range to go about because mm-hmm. Cooper's playing and not to say he's playing one tone. I think there's times when you get you get the sense of, like I said, when he's in the closet talking like that loneliness, the isolation, the depression, you, you get a sense of when he's he's upset. He's not sure what's going on when he hears about the cancer. I mean, and for most people like that, because I've been around people that have that energy level that constantly like nothing will get us down. Mm-hmm. It's every time you pivot, even if it's in like a bad stage, you know, yeah, they still carry uh, that. Hey, everything's going to be all right. You know, it's just a different tone of what they give to you. And it's a different sense of what they're communicating and how they're interacting with you. Yeah, Like <clears throat> he, what's funny is like, if you and that's like I, I hate to go just dogs, but like at the very beginning they're two puppies, and then throughout the movie she just becomes this older dog, whereas he's a puppy the whole time, you know. And even at the end of the film, you like when he's dancing with the what they do the orchestra thing and they do the you know yeah at the at the college, and he's still going at it, you know. Like he never he never loses that you know energy and um I don't to me that's what made it fun. You know, and, I that's gotcha. what, and that's what it was a little repetitive for me. But. And I will say, if you're not vibing it or you're not thinking like, oh, yeah, and you're starting to you, you get muddled down more into like the it's just one tone. Mm-hmm. That energy loses the, the appeal of by the end of the film, because yeah. by the end of the film, if you're just going off of like, all right, like, got it, you mm-hmm. know, you're and yeah, character growth. There's not much from him. Yeah, but at the same token, too, I don't know if this isn't really like a, you know conventional hero's journey. I mean, it's just a. It's not. You know, you it's know. a look at at a man's life and how he was. So, mm-hmm. you know, depending on how you take it, like I like I took it at face value, and you know, I I he all the shit he was doing, I was like laughing. I was like, man, this is it's fucking wild. Yeah, I don't think it also helped too that because of how repetitive I found it, the pacing just wasn't there for me, and I I found myself like checking the runtime to see like when it was going to kind of like wrap up it's like okay yeah where are we going and you know when you get the same sort of scenes over and over and over again it's like i i, I get it he's kind of a slut like <laughs> you know, yeah. i don't really need much more convincing yeah. to know that this guy kind of gets around and he loves people a little too much but 
I can also see where, like, if you're in your position, you're taking it at face value, you're getting more of what you enjoy seeing, where it's like that dynamic of, oh, he's very passionate, mm-hmm. and you kind of see that through his music, but also his conversations, and his, the way that Bradley Cooper plays the Everything character. he did. Yeah. yeah. I mean... And then you also see it through, like, Carrie Mulligan's eyes. Like, there's a lot going on, but to me, it doesn't feel like it's specific enough to keep my enjoyment. No, and I agree. And, that, you know, like I said, some of the reviews I read, I mean, you can't argue there is no plot. And what they lean on is this relationship between him and his wife. And you got this very energized conductor that's a genius with music. And we don't even focus on the music. We're going to look at their relationship. Carrie Mulligan's going to go through all of this emotional range with how... You know, she had to had to spend this life with him, and we're just gonna keep looking at the same thing. I mean, it's like, uh, all right, uh, we're happy. He does something stupid. I'm sad. He cheers me up. We're happy. He does something stupid. We're sad. You know, and it's. I guess you're just looking at situations and events that get brought in, and you know, some of the some of it's got to be curiosity too. Of like, you know. Like when you were done with the film, were you like, I want to learn more about Leonard Bernstein? Or were you like, Not really. All right, that guy was a conductor, great job. You <laughs> Honestly, know? not really. Yeah. Like I was like, I got done with it. I was like, dude, wait, what? Like, how did this guy, I, people that have, I guess people like Napoleon, you know, like when you talk about these people that have like this, like one dimension about them that they were just more excellent than anyone else in, in the world, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, how did you get there? You know, and it's like, what? what are key factors or what happened in your life or like, what are some of your personality traits, you know, and that, that stuff kind of fascinates me with like, all right, like this dude was a gay Jewish American that became the only American conductor for, you know, I don't, and I, I hate to say it, I wasn't really sure in the world or to lead a certain orchestra, you know, but like, how do you get there? Especially with what you're masking, mm-hmm. you know? And, that's I think the other aspect about it too is like if if nothing really comes around these characters and you're getting you're involved with like their lives or what they got to or like what's going on and it's more of a look at just like man it's rinse and repeat it this movie I think will be one of the more like you know on uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes where they have the critic score and the audience score yeah I could see this being like a 90 critic score and a 40 audience score mm. you know like there's there's definitely like well, and not to say it could be the other way too. It could be a forty percent critic, ninety percent audience. I think that there's like uh, there's, um, there's a more mixed reception for sure. Yeah, and I don't think it. And I I think it's it's a lot more black and white and how people take it. Literally than, for the first floor of you minutes. <laughs> yeah, than other like you know, and then other films of where there's a lot more discuss discussions, talking points, and you know, like what well, was perceived this way, or you had to look at it that way, or the guy did, you know, like this this one feels like. If you don't like Lenny or you're just kind of, you know, it's going to get really repetitive. Yeah, it's one of those movies where, like, I feel like if you ask uh, anybody who's seen it what their opinion is, you're not going to get the same opinion twice. Like, it's kind of like a, an interesting sort of uh, test in that way of, like, a, a sort of snowflake indication of the movie where, like, each perspective on it is unique each person watching it is trying to get something different out of it or like they get something different out of it yeah uh they like it they don't like it they're kind of lukewarm on it to me it's one of those things where like us talking right now is kind of like me trying my best to articulate what it is i'm not a huge fan of this movie i think you i mean dude it's easy i mean it's you got you got a one-tone character that's leading the film and a plot that really doesn't exist. And that's really my biggest thing. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, you know, you're looking at it. Sam didn't like Oppenheimer. 
right? If Oppenheimer oh, he doesn't didn't like Barbie or Oppenheimer, yeah. Oh, what yeah, a bad not, fucking weekend for him. Yeah, Jesus, I mean, like, dude, you talk about yeah, it was his birthday. Thing. More like a Floppenheimer, am I right? He, if you don't get invested in that dude's life, right, and like invested in kind of the story of what's going on, it's gonna be a drag. Mm. And it's as simple as that. I mean, I think I think with this film, I mean, it's one of those things. If you don't, if you don't get invested with the characters, because that's all we focus on. Yeah, and. You know, those blonde, for instance, there are people out there that that might be their favorite film, and we're the fuck nuts that. I don't think I want to meet them. No, exactly. <laughs> we're the fuck You know, nuts. like what I'm saying? And we are the fuck nuts. Yeah, you're they right. gave them the, the a horrible rating. But you like, know what? If me, in my opinion on blonde, makes me a fuck nut, I will gladly wear that title. <laughs> Dude, I would wear a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it'd be a great it's a, hey there you go neon merch 2024 wear it to willow's first parent teacher conference <laughs> that'd be great <laughs> at least they know where i'm at with movies yeah but you know i mean those those types of films like you gotta if you're not into the characters especially the biopics like lincoln's another one i would say good luck yeah well and, it's like it, you know and i bring up the comparison again like Blonde was so tumultuous that I just I have no reason to care because like mm-hmm. everything's cranked up to fucking twelve. Whereas this movie, it's like it doesn't it doesn't ever like get there for me. It doesn't well, feel like it's doing enough to like really grab me. Yeah, exactly. That's what exactly, and and that's why I'm saying like I, I the first dude the first review I read on this thing, this guy goes out and he goes his. I guess uh, his grandpa and Lenny went to Harvard together mm-hmm. where they studied music. So he got to see, he got to see more of the guy and was genuinely curious because he was growing up when like Lenny was a big part of, you know, the, the music scene. Right. Yeah. And uh, he said, he, he goes, this movie blows six out of 10. And then he goes, <laughs> dude, I, and it was just a really funny review. Cause he goes, this movie blows. There's no plot, the relationship, the merit, you know, the, the relationship that they have and that they focus on, this is all ludicrous. They don't do enough of the music. With that being said, Carrie Mulligan tour to force Bradley Cooper's amazing nailing down Lenny, you know, with his antics and how he did things beautifully shot. Cinema's great. Really like the acting and their relationship seemed genuine. And like, I'm like, how the fuck do you get a six out of ten? <laughs> you know, but that's just where it is. It's yeah. a, it's a it's a it's a it, the story, if not invested, I think becomes really dry and repetitive. And, and that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, and I don't we don't you know not to beat a dead horse with it. Outside, of, I mean, outside of that, I mean, the cinematography and the score is great. You know. Yeah. I mean, I and I I really liked a lot of the transition scenes. I do have to bring up. Before we wrap this up, I need to bring this scene up where he pulls up in the car and he's listening to, I think, R.E.M. Yeah. And they've uh, got the line with Leonard Bernstein. They mention him in the song. And his license plate says Maestro. I kind of was like, all right, that's a big fucking cheese ball scene right there. Get this out of here. Yeah. I think, it, yeah, it could have been his ego, too. I mean, that it's... He's wild. I mean, and it's kind of funny that we're talking. Like, he's a, he's a genius music conductor. To me, the 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 movie kind of went from like a little small ham sandwich to like, okay, you just threw the whole hawk at my face right there. Well, like, so what do you like? That's why I guess I don't. Under, like, so you think it, that scene specifically? It's it's such a small nitpicky thing, but it was so like on the nose. And maybe Leonard Bernstein had a license plate that said Maestro on it, and maybe he was listening to the song. But you think it was too grandiose? Like it, he wasn't even that egotistical. It felt it listen. felt like too much. It felt like too much. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. And 
I guess I'm even if I miss it, I, the guy, I have no idea about the guy. I mean, like the, the one scene that cracked me up is that he's like 75 partying with the gay black dude and they're listening to shout and like a techno dance hall and they're grinding up on each other. And I'm like, you know, like how the f- one, the energy level of this dude two like you're fucking 75. Like, how is this still even going on? So, right. you know, and, like that's why I was just sitting there and like thinking like I don't know anything about this guy. This guy seems wild, you know. But like, yeah, it, it it curiosity with uh you know just being, I guess just being a genius and being able to uh, carry on like that. I mean, you know, carry on my wayward son. Yeah, there'll be peas when you are done. People think it's peace, but it's not. It's peas, the vegetable. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Was there anything else we wanted to say about Maestro that no, we didn't touch on? I don't think there's. I. 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 I no. Nope. Okay. Uh, let's get into ratings then. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Do you want to end on taxi? You want to do your taxi driver one? Your rating for that one last? Sure. All I right. can do that one last. Uh, yeah. This movie, it's kind of a mixed bag for me. It's one of those where I enjoy aspects about it. The cinematography is beautiful. Uh, Carrie Mulligan's great. Despite the fact that there were a lot of moments where it just felt like I was watching Bradley Cooper do an impersonation, I could tell that there was at least passion behind it. Uh, a lot of the music's good. Just isolated scenes that really impressed me, but overall a movie that kind of failed to uh, really make a connection with me. Yeah. And uh, with that, I'm giving this one a 5 out of 10. Ooh, I had 6 out of 10. 5 out of 10. Yeah, I, you know, like I said, to me, this movie feels like this is going to be a little bit more uh, black and white for if you like it, don't like it. Like, I, mm. I feel like this is an easier one where there's a thumbs up, thumbs down. And there's not the two thumbs down, two thumbs up. Yeah. Like, I think there's enough going on with it. Uh, I enjoyed it. I liked Lenny. I liked the character performance that Cooper gave us. I thought uh, her, you know, him and Carrie Mulligan were great. Um, the relationship odd as it was. And I think they tried to tie in more themes in with it to kind of carry the film that just get lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not on people. I mean, even on me, um, but I can't, the production, the, the, the score, the cinematography, I really like the transitions. I thought this was a great job by Cooper. The, I mean, the fucking dance or not the dance, but the, conducting in the German with the German symphony. I mean, yeah, outstanding. So that's a great scene. It real. I mean, that is like, uh, that it's, that's like an Oscar Beatty scene, you know, a hundred percent. Right. And I, it, that's a term that I've been avoiding this whole conversation because oh, that that's getting thrown like left and right, Yeah, which it's not one that I entirely disagree with either. But to me, that scene, it's like, it's, it's genuinely a good scene and you can tell he's putting passion behind it. Oh yeah. That being said, that did cross my mind of like, he's, he's kind of throwing some ham on this a little yeah. bit. I mean, for the whole thing seems like we're tr- Netflix is trying to get a grab here, but anyways, rewatchability is probably like one of the things that I've actually thought about. And that, that's actually one of the, that impacts some of my scores, but I had this at a nine out of 10. I don't think I'd be able to rewatch this anytime too soon. So I'm going to get, I'm an eight out of 10 with it. Like I still a good score. Yeah. The one, I mean, like I said, the one major flaw to me and it is probably, you know, really what just drives a film is the plot. So people are probably like 
very contradicting, but everything else was so grand to me that I really enjoyed what was going on. It's just, you know, if they could have picked something else to focus on and maybe pick the music and how it impacts your life and mm -hmm. what you're doing with outside of that and how it impacts your relationships. Could've I'll say better, this. Uh, it does feel like Bradley Cooper really cares about this movie. It doesn't feel like he's doing it out of like obligation or cash grab or anything. Right. Yeah, no phoning it in. It feels like he's putting 100% into it. So I, mean, I appreciate that. Dude, one, the one, one of the first editing scenes when he's up in the loft and then they go down through the orchestra onto the, you know, into the, the Philharmonic symphony or the Philharmonic. Anyways, um, great. I mean, a lot of the transitions in the, I mean, some of the dance scenes in here and then the music. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't think that this was intended to just win awards. I definitely think that there's some passion behind it, you know. Well, I guess we'll find out come uh, Oscar season. That's coming up. I wouldn't be shocked. Well, I don't know. I you know, I think he should be nominated. I don't know. I'd be I might be shocked if he won it, but I would guess he might get a nomination. She probably will get a nomination. Mm -hmm. And it'll probably get a few technical stuff, most notably cinematography. Yeah, the cinematography in this is great. I would not be surprised. So, also, don't you, you think Scorsese like got on a camera? I don't know. I don't know. It kind of it does have like, especially the black and white. It does kind of have that Scorsese feeling to it sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I think he said at the time he was going to make it at the time he made the Irishman, but he stepped down to do the Irishman and yeah. gave it to Cooper and was a producer on it. Whether or not, like, I don't know how often he would have been on set, but I don't that's know. what I'm kind of, it wouldn't surprise me if like he had a conversation with Cooper and was like, you know, just so you know, this is like kind of the, the way I do this, this is the way I have the cameras and like the visual setup and everything. So if you want to do like a black and white thing, here's some tips and tricks on how to get it looking sharp and how you want it. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that conversation took place. But at the end of the day, we just don't know. True. I, we don't. I was, it was just one of the things when you see the credits and they, they show that uh, Scorsese and Spielberg were attached to it. I know. That's and, a very uh, pairing right there. Yeah. And it's Powerful. like, I wonder, you know, did anyone have any like production notes or any like, that's gotta, hey, Bradley? That's got to feel good for Bradley Cooper knowing that like Spielberg and Scorsese, two of the biggest directors of all time, are in your corner. I mean, have you seen A Star is Born? Not yet. It's... I yeah, it's got some emotional weight. I'm curious to check it out, especially after watching this movie. I, despite my score, I'm still you know it's interested well, you, in Cooper. I was about to say it's a well done. You can't knock the film. I mean, it's more of like how it's going. But he didn't write the fuck. Well, he might have. I don't know. You said something about him and Singer or someone in Singer. Uh, it was Cooper and Josh Singer. I think his name was. Yeah, did the screenplay. But so I, I I'm not shocked that Scorsese and Spielberg were like, hey, we're gonna let's link up. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Scorsese, uh, we watched a film that was directed by him that you recommended called Taxi Driver. This is one of those rare instances where you recommend a film that I've seen that you haven't, especially one that pr is pre two thousand. Yeah, it very very true. It's pretty nutso, but so I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> relish in this moment. Yeah, um, one that has eluded me and. Enough people talk about it and such. It's one of the films where someone that you hear enough people talk about it that you're nervous if you don't like it. What's wrong with you? Yeah. 
I think so. That's why you avoid watching it. Know that uh, if you have any negative opinion about it, I will beat you up. Uh oh. And this is where. So I already kind of have an idea about what your score is. Because uh, you totally know that I can beat you up. Yeah. Right? Um. <laughs> so we got Taxi Driver, 1976. Um. Directed by Martin Scorsese, written by uh, Paul Sh- Schrader, yep. um, starring Robert De Niro as uh, the taxi driver, ta- uh, Travis Bickle. You have uh, Civil Shepard as Betsy, uh, Jodie Foster as Iris, Albert Brooks as Tom, the campaign manager, and <clears throat> um, Peter Boyle as Wizard, and who? Harvey Keitel. As, as Matthew, uh, yep. Charlie Rain, or Sport. Sport. Um, hey there, Sport. Yeah, so it's about uh, kind of, it's a character study uh, and a little bit of a character unraveling uh, as we get to live inside the head of Travis Bickle for two hours as a uh, honorably discharged uh, military veteran. You got to say honorably. Yeah. Uh, and. Yes, um, that decides he wants to uh, take up uh, taxi driving because he knows the city. He'll go anywhere, anytime, any part of the day. Yep. Uh, doesn't and, sleep too good. No, no, he doesn't. And it's it raises questions about his mental health and possibly PTSD from the war, perhaps. Um, and we just get to, we get to ride around with him as he looks at the scum of the city that is New York and wonders how he can fix it. Uh, as he uh, dives deeper and de- deeper into isolation, possibly depression, uh, wanting to make change. I don't know what you're talking about. Travis Bickle is a hero, and I will not have you slander his name. He is such a good person <laughs> and just wants what's best for the city, you know? Yeah, not afraid to tell anyone. You know what? He's, he's a a go-getter he gets shit done (laughs) he's my type of character that's why i like him organizes eyes organizes eyes no obviously uh yes this is a character study uh focuses on the collapsing mental fortitude of travis bickle (laughs) and harsh way of saying that but true i'm not wrong yeah and uh you know is is admittedly my favorite scorsese movie i love these types of movies where it focuses on a character that uh, is very complicated, uh, very well written. Uh, kind of makes you get into the mind of that character, and you get to see their day to day, their philosophies on life, how they kind of live, how they operate, and uh, the fascination that comes from just watching a sort of downward spiral of sorts, and how they try to cope with, fail to cope with the fact that they are very lonely. They have a lot of issues. There's PTSD. There, like you said. And uh, I think this is a great fucking movie. Uh, This is one of those movies where uh, it's kind of... And this is only like in circles that I feel like, uh, you know, few people might endeavor into. But it's one of those films that kind of has a reputation. People can view this movie and say that it's a film bro movie. They can kind of write it off as as something that... Yeah, very true. People who are into that type of movie, it's like, oh, what's wrong with you? Why do you like this movie? And there yeah. are people who can watch this and kind of get the wrong thing from it. They can view Travis as a hero, kind of like what I was joking about earlier. But 
I feel like this movie has so much going on in terms of the character, the writing, the setting, the style of it. I absolutely love the way that this movie is just made on a technical level. And uh, there's a lot about it that I can't wait to dive into. So I want to get your thoughts because you, uh, like I said before, are in the rare case where I've seen this movie and you haven't. So I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, Very... Man, I, I, I've actually, this thing's kind of marinated for a couple days and I, it keeps coming up on more and more uh, fascination with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, disturbed character. It's, um, I had no idea who or what Travis was. I've, I've, I've seen like the ending, you know? It's hard to avoid the ending. We kind of, we alluded to that in the last episode, but it's one of those things that's so ingrained in pop culture that... If yeah. you're into movies in any way, it's hard to avoid it. It yeah, and it's it's not the very very ending of it. It's the it's the, the shootout, you know. Uh, so if yeah. you guys haven't seen Taxi Driver two, turn this off, go watch it. Spoilers. Um, because it's it's I think it's a film that needs to be in the zeitgeist. Uh, at least I mean at least in your head of movies that you've seen. Um, yeah, like it, and I had so I had no idea about it, you know the mental collapse that he was gonna have, and as we're going through it, and it's funny because I've, like I said, I've seen some scenes of this. I mean, the most I had seen from, I'm trying to think of where it started because I hadn't seen him going in for the taxi interview, but it was it was almost like once you get into that first narration up until the point he courts Civil Shepherd and brings her to the porno film, and mm-hmm. he's like. I just didn't know. I didn't. I thought that you'd want to go to this. Like I don't know. I don't know film. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd seen up to that point, so I knew like I was kind of getting out ready to be uncomfortable for that. And then, and then you just see the collapse of his mind, uh, and it's like it's fascinating. You know, it's very fascinating. It's it's disturbing to an extent because it is so laissez faire about it. You know, because he is—he's the narrator. Yeah. He's an unreliable narrator, and obviously, there's nothing wrong with what he's doing. You know, so like as we go through this journey with him, as he's just falling into hell, um, you know, it, it, it makes it seem almost normal and casual about like what's happening. You yeah, know? there's like a weird level of acceptance to the type of person he is, the type of things that he's going through and experiencing. Yes, because. You know, the people around him, they either dismiss it as, oh, you just need more sleep or, oh, you just need to go to a porno theater, whack off. Yeah. Uh, You know, they're either dismissive or they're equally or more unstable than he is. Like, uh, you know, the scene where Martin Scorsese himself pops into the movie, says the N word and pieces out. Yeah. Um, But no, where he climbs into the cab and he's, you know, debatably more unhinged than Travis is at that point. Yeah. And it's funny because it's a great scene, is because it, I think that's almost like where it gets flipped in his head. Because after that, he goes to talk to Wizard or Peter Boyle, mm-hmm. and he goes, ah, "I got some bad thoughts, man. I want to do some bad things, you know." Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was after that scene, like he thinks he's almost on an opposite trajectory than what Scorsese is, you know, from that conversation. When in all reality, he's almost going down that exact same path yeah you know Mm -hmm. and it's it's a really fascinating watch with what he perceives as being right and just you know and where and what it's ultimately leading to yeah you know and his figure and like how he carries himself and his outlook and it's uh 
Yeah, it it was. I mean, it was interesting. A lot of it just has to do with how well De Niro plays it, because he does such a good job of in that scene specifically with Martin Scorsese, where you read on his face like he's 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 like very averse to like what this guy's saying. You know, the the guy in the backseat's being very volatile and yeah. like saying a lot of really bad things. But then you also get the sense that Travis is really thinking about what he's saying and kind of applying it to maybe his own situation, kind of taking different aspects of it and applying it to himself of like, oh, I could be like this guy. I could do the things that he's saying. I could do all these things. And then, you know, you get the scene where like he goes up to Peter Boyle and that scene also tells you so much about his character and that like, and you get also just many other hints of this throughout the movie as well. But like, it just seems like he has some sort of like, developmental not disability but like you can tell that he just doesn't really have much education they that's why they harp on it at the beginning of the film Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the lines that really stick out at least to me when they were going through because it's a great it's a really easy uh exposition scene and to give you the identity of travis bickle himself right you know and you're it's literally a, learning about him from the characters and verbatim it, and it, but it's not ham fist and it's not done in like a very demeaning way to the audience of like hey no. like go get in the car with your brother mm-hmm. you know uh, you remember your brother Larry? Sit yeah. with him. Like they just do it. Like all right. He doesn't get a letter from his parents saying like Travis. We know that you've had a hard time after the war, but yeah. I'm sure you'll be okay living on your own now that you're in the big city. Yeah. Hopefully your nighttime <laughs> problems will go away. Like it's yeah. it, it's not any bullshit like that. No, I mean it's just he goes in there and he's like I'm gonna do the job application and the guy like and I'm like thinking like at the time too I'm like well it's the 70s they didn't have computers you might have had to do it right there. You know, you walk in and the guy fills it out for you and looks at you and, you know, and you get all that. But they, they education, he goes, yeah, I got some. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, like, here I got and there. Some. Yeah, here and there. Here and, and there. The guy like looks at him. He's like, and then he just, you know, they, they sit on it for a little bit. So you get this idea of you got a guy that really, you know, uneducated, you know, mm-hmm. trying to coming back from the war, trying to assimilate maybe a little bit and go into the big city thinking that he can make it big and then, you know, kind of figure <laughs> Figuring out, you know, that it's really funny that he doesn't like the city. Yeah. I I, I just say, he goes, uh, what are you, uh, I forget, he goes, something, something, you're trying to, you moonlight? And he goes, well, what's moonlighting? You know? Yeah, he doesn't know what moonlighting means. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't know what a lot of things mean. And, and that's not only just an indication of, like, his lack of education, but just his lack of understanding human interaction. Yeah. Like, when he takes Sybil Shepard to, and, you know, we're jumping all over the place here, but when he takes her to the porno theater, not understanding that that's something that she probably doesn't want to do. You they know, watched that, the sweetest sex education film. Like, yeah. It wasn't even like a porno. Like they were showing like th- these are human body parts. Yeah. This is how you have intercourse. And yeah. it's like, you know, but you know, the people go there for a very sinister reason. And uh, it's one of those things where like any quote unquote normal person who could read human emotions and like read social interactions would know that that's not something that you, you do in any sort of like normal situation let alone a first date well and it's a great there's that great contra well maybe not contradiction there but like a great um oh i can't think of the word but like contrast yeah because he goes in there because i can tell you're a lonely person i see every day and like she actually likes the mystery around him and that she he's actually seeing her for her 
You know, like, she's mm. very into him at the first date. Yeah. Well, Travis doesn't seem like somebody who would also, like, bullshit you either. Like, right. he he, feel, he seems like one of those people that would, like, kind of tell you what's on his mind, be mm-hmm. honest about it at the very least. Yeah. And if he doesn't understand anything, then you're going to see that come out. But at the well, same time, you know, like you said, there's, like, a weird relatability there where, like, he's so lonely that he can see that there's a level of loneliness in her that but they can have a connection over. It's, it's like a funny thing, though, because you, you wonder, is it that he actually sees it? Because he doesn't read human emotions that well. No. Or is it just that he's projecting and that he finds her so... Oh, there's you know, so much level of projection. You there. know what I'm saying? That he finds her so beautiful that he's like, oh, you're in the same boat I am. Mm-hmm. And it's just because that's how I am. That's how you are. And maybe to a certain extent... I think it's more of the mystery around him that she's drawn to because she might not be. You never, you know, I couldn't tell you how her character was or if she yeah. was feeling that way. But um, it, and so you get that where he totally knocks it out of the park and it's like she totally into him to the next date fucking over. Yeah. You know, and that's mm-hmm. why I think it's a great contrast of the who he really is, too, because we really don't know his audience members and like. You know, I, I didn't realize that he knocked it out of the park on the first like the first day. I didn't realize they did all that. I just thought the first one was them going to the porno movie. And like I saw that and I was like, Holy shit, how'd you fuck this up? Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, he found a way. Yeah. Like, very easily too. <laughs> very fucking easily. <laughs> and the worst part is he doesn't like he doesn't know what's wrong. He's like, What? I, I, I thought people this is something couples go to. I've seen see, couples here. Yeah, I see people here all the time. I like see, they go, This is I thought this was normal. I didn't know. I didn't know. There's such a level of disconnect that is played so well by well, Robert De Niro. And he is so simple. Like, and that's the thing too. Like you take this. It's almost like kind of like a perfect storm, too, because you take this. I mean, he's supposed to be from the Midwest, you know, and you take this simple person from the Midwest that knows a certain level of life and you thrust them into this unknown environment. And it's where all, people are just already volatile. Yeah. You know, at this time, New York is in a decline. So, like, stress levels are very high. Crime is pretty rampant. Oh, you got everything going on. I mean, it's just, and the gangs are running, or you got the mafia running it, you know, and there's just so much shit going on that it's like, you literally have to be like, uh, you know, you have to be, uh, you know, an alley cat. Like, you got to be on top of your game. With you kind of have on. to be a little unhinged in order to survive New York you, at that time. Well, dude, like, you're you're in an environment, like, if you're thinking about predators, like, you are living in the jungle. Mm-hmm. You know, like, everyone's a predator at that stage. Like, you can't, and if you're observing other people, and you're missing out on like why their actions are their actions like you will get eaten up and that and he that's how like that's why he was so far completely out of his fucking realm yeah you know and he can't relate to anyone he doesn't find anyone in the military he doesn't know how to hold a conversation you know like you just see him just start just dissenting there's not one conversation in this that he has uh, maybe except for like the store clerk after he shoots the guy where like it doesn't feel like uh, things are going s- smoothly or that he's in control of the conversation. Like it always feels like he just has no idea how to carry himself, how to articulate himself. Yeah. He wants to have the confidence to say that, yo, know, he's going to be the one to clean the streets and to like save the city. But at the same time. When he starts speaking in front of somebody, he just can't like carry himself that well. Well, I it makes you wonder if he knows that there's a level of um, 
wrongness or maybe he just is yeah like you said insecurity or not there's also like an insincerity about like his viewpoints on the city itself too because like that quote that i read earlier oh he fucking yeah he even fucks it up when he's like writing it in the journal to himself yeah listen you fuckers you scumbags uh and then he like stumbles and has to start out like he doesn't even he's not even 100 percent sure of like why he feels the way he feels. But he just knows that he feels so lonely and isolated that, oh, it must be because of this. It must be because the city is like this. So therefore, I have to take it out well, on something. He might not know he even feels that way. Right. You know what I'm saying? There's like, like it's such a level of delusion. There. Yeah. Like he's just like everything's normal. And then, you know, I don't It's funny that you say that because I think. Watching it, that's when I was like unreliable narrator. There's a, it's a great scene because I think he's reading it out loud while he's doing his gun stuff. And there's an actual like when he starts it over, there's a quick edit in the film. You can see it like kind of loops back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that was interesting. It's jarring, but it fits so well with like the monologue and how he it's, starts over. Yeah, it's a little creepy, and that's when you get into oh, we are living inside his head. Like mm-hmm. everything that's been going on has been what he's seen so who knows even maybe even the scene with civil shepherd like he thought that that's how well the first day went that that's why the second day arose i don't know um yeah dude this i mean this thing and there the unfortunate thing about it is there will never be a movie shot like this the grittiness of new york and especially at what was going on it's during depicted the, so well during the time did you read about like i read about how and i think i might have included it in some of my notes but at the time new york as a city was on the verge of bankruptcy so there were definitely like there were lots of desolate buildings there was a garbage strike that's why there was a garbage strike too trash mounted up everywhere yeah like you said the city's going bankrupt they can't pay the fucking workers to take out trash so at the time of filming it just happened to work out that so many locations in new york just looked like literal garbage yeah for scorsese to shoot his film in to where like He's really capturing like just the messiness and the grime and the filth of this city, mm-hmm. and it really speaks volumes to how well it matches up with like the narrative going. It's like, it's kind of like a perfect storm of like what was supposed to happen with this movie. Like yeah. the actors took pay cuts to make this movie the way it was, you know, that it, they wanted it to be made. Mm-hmm. The city was in such a state to where like it totally matched the tone of what the movie wanted to go for, and it's just a perfect storm of everything coming together and working out so well the way it does yeah it's it's remarkable Mm -hmm. and we'll never i don't think we'll ever see anything like it again i want to bring this up because it kind of gives you a perspective of my experience with this movie uh so i had seen joker before i watched this movie Mm -hmm. and joker when i first saw it and i i you know i've rewatched it a few times since then but i don't think i've seen joker since i've watched taxi driver for the first time and Joker's one of those movies where I experienced it. I really liked it. I connected with it. It's one of those things where, like, there's so much about it that I really uh, think uh, I'm a huge fan of when it comes to movies like that. Mm-hmm. Where, like, oh, there's a lot going on here. There's so many different things that it's doing. And then I come across Taxi Driver, and I think to myself, shit, like, you can see all the DNA from taxi driver when you watch joker like there's so much going on in joker that i like and then i watch this movie and i realize almost all the things i like about joker are just in this movie and i think done in to me almost like a more satisfying way because like 
you know, obviously Joker takes a lot of inspiration from Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. you know. It's set in the same time period. It's also about, like, this lonely, isolated guy. He kind of, like, takes matters into his own hands, very mentally ill, uh, takes it out on people. Yep. And uh, this movie, the pacing's really great. The way it handles itself is very well. Yeah, there's just, I don't know. It's one of those where, like, it almost feels overwhelming to discuss it because I want to talk about everything. But then at the same time, it's like, I don't know how to dive quite into it. I mean, bits, we got bits and pieces of it and a hundred percent, you know, um, I, I think you had, you had to have the realistic element of it to see what he was going through to provide some of the, uh, belief or the realism behind this unreliable narrator. So like if New York's clean or you got New York that it looks like, you know, nowadays, like it's kind of like an unrealistic element of where you're at and what you're going through in the time. But because of everything that was going on, it's almost a character unto itself. I mean, like you're almost in like whatever the seventh circle of hell or you're almost like in a certain like Gotham City. You yeah. know, like it, it, it's almost like this evil world that you're living in and you're looking around and you see all the villains around you. And it, it does it in such a great job that it's believable up to a certain point. It's almost like he's in hell at certain points. Well, in, in hell, but also he's got to be the guy that rises above. Like he's got to do something impactful to say, like to get the city, you know, not, not to say right the ship. I mean, he's not going to do anything that crazy, but like. There's got to be something where he conquers something to kind of bring this the back to maybe where it was or get away from the streets and we get to see a little bit better part of the town, you mm-hmm. know, or yeah. And and uh that's I mean the the locations that they shoot at and everything going on and the bustling of the city and these people walking around and you just get to see just really you know, and you want not everyone's bad, you know, but you get a lot of just a real world look at what's going on mm-hmm. and um yeah they they won't ever capture that and then to couple it with the score of the film dude i i fucking loved the music in this thing music's great it's I got mean, a very like noirish tone to it yeah but the say there's like something really off kilter about it makes it feel like very in line with the tone of the movie yes yeah no i mean that's a great way with the jazz that just plays through the thing but there's just it's a little distilted or disoriented there's like the drums that go it kind of almost gives it like a very militaristic feel at points yeah reminds you that he was in the military so like there's like a sense of duty that he's doing when he's doing the actions that he's performing i always took it as like his 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 beliefs getting ramped up Mm -hmm. like when he's going through you just like when the jazz is playing like you get this very insomnic or, you know him having insomnia but that vibe that he's just going through the motions you know and we're living in this malaise of a world that he's just soaking in uh and then you get the drums and everything like when it starts kicking in yeah like like duty you know like he's got all of a sudden he's got some sort of self again that he's yeah. got to perform or he's got to do something and it the soundtrack or the score of this thing really plays well into how his emotions are going and that's what i was talking about with maestro i wish they would have incorporated more into that with what he was going through, because that would have helped out with the audience on what he's feeling. Yeah. Because in this one, and it's very tastefully done. It's not. It's not beaten over the head, and like a lot of. And I don't know if there's changes or if they keep playing the same, same tone over and over again with the, you know that little jazz and 
Um, I don't know if there's some differences in it, but like it accompanies it really well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's such a good juxtaposition of how Travis views himself in the situation versus what we're observing as the viewer of the movie. Because yeah. the way he sees it is that he's so enamored with this sense of duty. It's almost like he kind of gave himself a sense of purpose where he starts buying the guns. He rigs all that shit up in like his jacket and his arm, like the whole sliding mechanism thing. And he's like, I'm going to do something. I'm going to clean up the streets. I'm going to make an impact, but it's so misguided. And even he doesn't even fully understand what that impact or what that sense of duty is. And so therefore it's just very warped. And you just see the darkness of it. Yeah. And I, it's one of those things that I'm just like fascinated by. And I really wanted to watch this movie with Megan to get her thoughts on it too, but she was sick at the time. So I don't know, but this is one that I'm definitely going to throw on again uh, in the, in the near future, I would say, yeah. especially this, this viewing specifically, I think I liked it more than the first time. And the first time I already really loved it. Yeah. But this time it really just cemented the fact that this is my favorite Scorsese. Out of all that I've seen, yeah, I don't know about yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if I'd say favorite. I this one is, it, this thing is like really well done, you know. Especially for a movie that was made in 1976, where, you know, and this is just me making kind of an assumption, and maybe you can kind of back me up on this, but in a time period where mental health and talking about. Uh, the difficulties with that really wasn't a thing being discussed. So I'm glad it, it wasn't. Mental health still isn't like we've just now gotten to the point where mental health is like treat it like your body. Right. Like within the last like maybe decade. Right. Yeah. Decade. Yeah. I was about to say. Yeah. Like I'm thinking like 10, 10, 15 years, maybe. Like yeah. I'm thinking like almost as like five years ago, like you really started throwing like therapy and counseling and all that shit was like, and I don't mean shit. I'm just saying like all the things that go in with it, it's almost a stigma. Like if you can't control your brain, what else can, can't you control? Like if you have a mental illness, it's something that you should be easily able to figure out yourself. Dude, when they came back from Vietnam, shell shock was referred to as like, um, and and people from World War Two is just like, oh, you got, you took one too many to the head, you know, you're just gonna be seeing, you know, you'll be seeing ghosts, mm-hmm. and it's just like it's whatever, you know, and that's why a lot of those people struggle in the VA is probably so poorly underfunded. It's because it, it never got the proper treatment that it needed. And, and you know, and as a society and, a, you know, with Western medicine going on and stuff, it's just one of the things that science will eventually catch up because you have to look at so many other facets of what's going on. A lot of people don't believe in, you know, the brain having different parts of it, you know, and different. So yeah. anyways, but I don't Paul Schrader, did you read anything on him? Uh, I read uh, a little bit about how he wrote the screenplay. He was mm-hmm. in a hospital uh, because he was like a, he was homeless at the time, sleeping in his car. Uh, so I don't remember too much of why he ended up in the hospital. He so I read I read about it. He he he, <laughs> he went to Hollywood, right? He mm-hmm. had a wife that he divorced. Paul Schrader, and I'm just gonna throw this in there since we're talking about him. Uh, grew up in Grand Rapids. Was oh, born and raised in Grand Rapids, wonder, Michigan. Boy, that's why they gave him a Midwestern accent. I didn't realize that he was a Midwestern. Like Travis Bickle's supposed to be from the Midwest. Yeah, apparently De Niro went and spent time with uh, some Midwestern soldiers to kind of gather how they would sound. You know, yeah. I thought I was like, man, we're being studied. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're being looked at through a glass lens by the Italian actors. Um, 
But anyways, so Schrader went out to, he was in Hollywood. He uh, divorced his wife. He broke up with the lady that he left his wife for. Yeah. Uh, he was squatting at her place until she booted him out. Uh, he left the um, AFI, the American Film Institute, and he had a shit ton of debt. So he was wandering the streets. He became a drunk. He said he'd sleep till like 5, 6 o'clock and then go out and get hammered. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until he got an ulcer. That's why he went to the hospital. And he wrote the, he wrote the script based on his experiences of being you know in that life. Mm -hmm. And really, he thought the... There's an interesting contrast as the unaware self meets like the aware self and like what what you drift into and what you're not necessarily um, paying attention to to kind of you know dumb it down. Yeah, you know, and uh, I mean at least for me, um, and that's where a lot of the passion comes from. You know, and uh, it's it, it turn and obviously there's more there's some more liberties taken but i don't think there was a whole lot of changes to the script or anything like that um a couple no he added the he added the uh the vietnam aspect of it the yeah. fact that he's a vietnam vet i think he wanted to yeah have ptsd play a little bit more so and gives it another layer to add to his mental state absolutely yeah have you uh, are you familiar with Paul Schrader's other movies? He's worked with Scorsese on some other ones. Uh, I think he did the one with Nicolas Cage, Bringing Out the Dead. Yep. I think it's called. Na in '99, he did. He uh, wrote Raging Bull. Yes. And, um, and then Paul Schrader's directed his own movies too. He also wrote The Last Temptation of Christ. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, I, the only other movie that I've seen that he's both written and directed is First Reformed. With, oh, with uh, Ethan Hawke? Ethan Hawke. Very kind of similar DNA to Taxi Driver. I think that this is kind of his um It's very much style. in his wheelhouse, yeah. He's, yeah. he's got a shtick. Yes. He's got a bit of a shtick. That's what I, I <laughs> kind of picked up on like, when I, I was reading some of it. I've his. heard the card counter is very similar that way. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah? With uh, Oscar Isaac. Okay. Which, you know, I'll check that out probably in the future so I can report back, but... Yeah, I really like the way this is written. This, and it's fascinating to learn that that's how it was written from yeah, his perspective. It he yes, that's what I said too, and I I was like, man, wow, you talk about and I, he just handed it, walked it, he just handed it to his agent. Is like, here you go. Mm -hmm. It's like see if you can buy someone. And but it when you talk about films getting made and just having a bit of luck, I mean, all this shit. It sounds like everything that we're talking about is like, man, that luck, 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 luck. You know. Uh huh. So everything uh, coming together, it's the perfect storm. But and well directed though, it's not like Scorsese was yes. just lucky that he made this film. I mean, he definitely had. He's got a very in this thing at least tastefully done shots that don't say "look at me," you know, mm -hmm. but also enough to kind of give you like as an audience member that we're we're drifting here, swaying here, you know, like the the editing choice, uh, him on the phone. When they start peering off down the hallway, mm. um, when uh, uh, Bickle's in the room and they start panning up from the ceiling shot, looking down, you know, you're saying that uh, his biggest contribution to the movie isn't when he pops in, says the n word, and then leaves. <laughs> no, that's I, not it. I guess he had to sit on a he had to sit on a couple blankets so he could see above the seat. Yeah, he's kind of a short king. <laughs> But yes. no, I completely agree with you. I was thinking about those two, just how well 
filmed it was and like the different creative choices going into like the camera movements and the POV. They had to get rid of the ceiling in that apartment so that they could have that like a god's eye view yeah. when the whole shootout's done and it's yeah. like panning through everything and the cops are standing there. I really love those choices and it really makes it feel not only like it's very artfully done and kind of like almost an art house movie, but it just gives it that timeless aspect too. Like very, this is a movie that has aged so well and was very ahead of its time, not with just like the filmmaking, but the subject matter, the attention to detail, the idea behind mental illness and that being addressed in the absolute wrong ways at that time period. <laughs> or not at all. Or just not at all. I was about to say, I mean, Travis Bickle approached it the wrong way. Other than that, no one really talked about it or even gave him the light of day. Yeah. Right. And even when he tried to seek help out from a you know someone that he maybe called a friend, they were like, eh, just sleep it off. It was. So that conversation, like, that to me, I, I that was probably my favorite part of the movie. I like that part a lot. Is when he goes out and he, he finally works when up he's the talking to, Wizard. to ask Wizard, hey, like, and then Wizard tries to give him some help. And Wizard doesn't know, because like you said, I mean, if it's a, if you're looking at mental illness, he doesn't know what's going on. Wizard and seems like someone who's very comfortable in his life that really doesn't have that many problems. He Like, I was thinking about Sam's Club and, like, you know, a couple people over there that, like, that's like if you had that conversation with, like, that's mm-hmm. the answer you'd get from them. Yeah. You know, it was like, hey, man. Like, very, I, like, content with their lot in life. Yeah, like, this is it for me. This He's is, been a cabbie for, like, 17 years. Yeah, and, like, I, I know the streets. I know what to do. I know where to go. Like, the, you know, and, and when they do the thing, they just put it right on Travis. because I don't know. I got a lot of bad ideas creeping up there, man. Like, I don't, you know. I want to do some bad things. And, like, Wizards, like, instead of, like, you okay? You know, it's just like, hey, don't worry about it. Yeah. You'll be all right. There's You're like, young. Go get laid. Maybe, like, a bit of, like, a misguided idea of, like, hey, you just need to... Just do what I do. Just you know, go get some, go get some puss or whatever. Yeah. Like I don't know, whatever yeah. they say. Yeah, those crazy kids. Those crazy kids. I do really like Peter Boyle in that scene. And uh, the only other thing that I've seen him in besides uh, Scooby Doo Two Monsters Unleashed, nope. is uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. He plays Frank mm-hmm. on that show. He's also in. Uh, it's interesting to see him in a movie like four decades before that show, and he's still bald AF. <laughs> oh yeah, he's got the really clown hair going. It's it looks really the goofy. Bowl cut, yeah. Which I maybe was. It doesn't it like doesn't he have long hair? It's too? like it's long and it's very stringy. It looks like yeah. if you held clothing to it, it would just stick because of the static. Yeah, yeah. He's and. It could be the humidity and like I guess there was a heat wave at the time of filming, so like, it looks like it's made of doll's hair. Oh yeah, like God knows what those guys went through to make this thing. Um, I liked him in the movie, like the few scenes we get of him. Yeah, I appreciate it. It it gives me a new perspective on him as an actor. Do you? And maybe you can help me out here. Do you think the uh, plot line with the senator is warranted? I think so. Yeah. It it tells a lot about him as a character because you could easily see his plot line with Jodie Foster and, and him wanting to rescue her as like, you know, okay, that's a pretty noble thing that he wants to do. It kind of feels like it's coming from a genuine place, but then you juxtapose it with his intentions of murdering the senator. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that's not just coming from a place of righteousness. He kind of just wants to do it so he can shoot people. And him going after the senator is that idea of like 
you know, it could have gone one way, it could have gone the other way. If he had shot the senator, people would paint him as a villain. He would be viewed the same way that uh, John Wilkes Booth is viewed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some interesting implications with this movie and assassinating presidents as well, which we can get to later. But because that doesn't work out for him, it just so happens that he can take it out on people that uh, most of the population views as scum of the earth. So then people view him as a hero because of his actions. It could have easily gone one way or the other. And I don't think Travis mentally, emotionally in that situation would have felt different about either of them. So I guess. So, yeah, I I, that part I do understand. I guess it's more so of do we attribute him wanting to kill the senator as an act of righteous righteousness or is it? strictly to paint the picture of how mentally ill Travis is at the time that that's why he wants to do it because there isn't anything that comes out to me at least through the dialogue or um scenes of the film that would want him to eliminate the senator the only thing i can think of and this is a very small thing and it almost kind of goes against the idea that Travis can't read people is the scene where the senator gets into the cab mm-hmm. and they start talking to each other and the the senator asks him like uh what's what's your opinion on this city or something like that and no, travis goes, what would you change what do you want what, what would you, would you change? change with america right and then travis goes on this long tirade about like oh someone needs to come in here and like clean up these streets get rid of this scum like this scum is no good blah 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 and it like kind of puts the senator off oh yeah and Kind of puts the senator off, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh I yeah. Mean, I, I was like, "All right, man, don't lay." You it were all hiding on the behind table. the. You were hiding behind the couch while he's going on this tirade. Yeah. But there's that moment where the senator leaves the cab with his like two like whatever his two buddies, uh, his like constituents or whatever, and they go in the hotel and they kind of like look back a little bit at him. They have like a little bit of an interaction that you can't hear, but then you cut to Travis and he's kind of got this expression on his face. Like he knows that that interaction didn't feel right. He knows that there was something there that just didn't have the correct energy. He wanted it to. So then maybe you can gather in your mind, like he knows that the Senator isn't taking him seriously. He knows that the Senator is somebody who isn't really listening to him. So then there's like a weird personal vendetta there that maybe motivates his desire to shoot him specifically. But then again, like I said, it kind of goes against the idea that Travis can't read people. And I don't know how much of that I want to read into when (laughs) we're already kind of justifiably shown that Travis's mental fortitude is just going to the point where like, there's not really much of a rationale there anyway. Right. Like he could just, shoot him because he just wants to shoot somebody and he could totally use the idea that he's doing it for a righteous reason see that's the other there's two there's two points there so one i i that was the only one that i that really was throwing me off was a whole senator thing there mm-hmm. he the one that to me i i read into is he said we are the people and his whole spe- we are the people yeah not these we, buttons say we are the people yeah do you hear the difference with how i say it all right, uh, we'll, we'll, well just I'm, do this. I'm not paying for these buttons. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. We don't pay you, and we'll throw them away. Yeah. And now you give us an underline, the R. <laughs> we are the people. We need a whole movie where he's negotiating campaign merchandise. I feel like Albert Brooks in this thing was the only one that felt off. Well, so hold on. Before we get to Albert Brooks and my whole, like, I, it's not even like a big thing. Um, mm. We are the people. 
I, I kept like going back into like, oh, he views the senator as a representation of the scum of New York since he, we are the people implying me and you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so that's why it was a little bit of a stretch for me, but I guess behind the, the, the guides of mental illness, you can kind of, you can really paint it in any picture you want. And I bet you there are probably some really good things out there about why he wanted to do it outside of, you know, cause I don't disagree with you. Right. And I, I do find if we're trying to say like, he can't read emo- like people's emotions or their body language, that's a hard one. But there is a, when he walks away out of that cab. The guy does look back at him, and it's a weird look he gives him too. Because like when I like when I, you know me watching, I'm like, all right, is he like buying into this thing, or is he like that guy was uniquely fascinating, or is he like Jesus Christ? We have to like make sure we keep tabs on him. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it's a weird one, and like De Niro, you can see like looking back at him, like doesn't know how that conversation went at all. Yeah, and like I don't know if there's some like hope in his face where it's like, man, that might have got to him. You know, because like. I stand up for what I believe in and that's right. Yeah. Or maybe there's also too, and this is something that I didn't think about until now. Maybe it's not even something that we're explicitly shown or told in the movie. Maybe through Travis's weird mental gymnastics that he makes looks at the Senator and sees how he's trying so hard to relate himself to the people that are going to vote for him, but then kind of sees through the bullshit almost in that, okay, you're a Senator, you're rich as fuck. You're going to this nice hotel you're paying lots of money to stay here. You're making lots of money. There's like a disconnect between this. You're not really who you say you are. You're a big phony. Yeah. In the simplest way, because that was like an educated thought on it. Right. You know, so it's a... That's something that you... That's one that you kind of have to like... Read through the line. Yeah. Kind of like come to that own conclusion yourself. And like there's... One of the things I love about this movie, there's so many different things it could be, right? Well... And that's the thing, you know, when you talk about an unreliable narrator, I'm thinking, like, if, if you ever write a film, just do it that way because it could be so subjective in so many different ways. You yeah. know, it's a easy, not to say easy way, but there's there's a lot of things that you can touch on, but without a lot of clarity on what's going on mm. and you can fall back on. You just don't know. Yeah. You know, but. Well, it's also specific enough still, too, where, like, that character is played so well by De Niro. It's so well written. Like it feels like you could meet somebody like Travis Bickle, and it's kind of alarming. <laughs> it's, it reminds you that like people exist like this out there. Oh well, I mean not to say it in a bad way, but yeah, I mean it's just right. It's it's your own world that you create. I mean mm-hmm. it's like one of the. I don't remember what movie it is, but like, um, and I don't know if I said it out loud or not, but like it's one of those things where. Everything that you take in through your eyes is all your own perspective. Yeah. So like the the fantasies that you can create too with the with what you see, you know, you can make that into your own world. And then like you kind of get into like, man, like how crazy is that? You know, where where you can lose some of that grounded sense of reality. Yeah. You know, and in this film, he does it incredibly well. And yeah, I mean, it, that's why a lot of what he's going through and a lot of what's happening, it's. It's a very uneasy feeling throughout the film, but mm-hmm. not enough to make you feel un- maybe uncomfortable, but nothing like I, I think of uh, Funny Games, you know, where that one people like hair on the back of your neck sticking up. Like, this is like a very, like, something feels off and like something bad's going to happen. Yeah. But even when they get to the end of it and what he does, it's not, I mean, it's, I don't it's want not to say like triumphant, but like it's not triumphant 
in the sense that like you know a superhero movie would have the hero defeat the villain and everybody feels good right. about it like he does something you know you could argue is a good thing like he he gets rid of he gets rid of people who are are uh, abusing children you you can absolutely say 100% right but well, yeah, the way Within, he, we're we're saying, but take like a justice view approach of it. Don't go in there, and start assassinating people. But yeah, I'm not telling people to do that. Uh, don't take that at all. Uh, but there's something noble in what he's doing. There's a sense you of could it. see the good in it. You could see the right the the I want to say justification, but like you understand it, right? Like. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. To a certain extent, but then you watch the scene and you're still kind of horrified at what he's doing because it, the way it's framed, the way it's shot, the way you know his intentions are coming from, like it See, still makes you feel uneasy I don't about know if, it. Yeah, I got like because I'm trying to think like when we got to that point, I was thinking like what really separates him from these other people. Mm-hmm. Like the first time that I've like when I kind of. I guess one of the uneasiness, not to say went away, but like, and I was like, all right, like we're heading down like a bad path here. And like, I was ready for it. He goes in the store and shoots the shoplifter. Yeah. Which totally merited. But then again, it's like under the guides, like the system that we have, you shouldn't have had the gun. You should have been able to do that. Now, given with what, what he was carrying at the time, the resources he had, it's like, you made the right decision. You'd think, right? obviously shoplifting's bad mm-hmm. and he took out a bad guy but like at the same token really you shouldn't have anything at all with what you're with, with what's going on like no it technically should have been helpless in that scenario right technically and like you could also argue that like if he didn't do anything maybe the guy would have just like gotten the money and left like nobody would have been harmed yeah. or he could have did something differently like snuck up on the guy because he was behind him and the guy didn't right. see just held the gun to his head have him drop his gun call yeah. the police have them take the guy away yeah so like and that's where we get into that. You can make a lot of arguments that like that guy didn't need to die. Right. But it's also under the same, you know, you look at it and say, that's a bad dude. Mm-hmm. And he got what was coming, you know, right. and that's where you get to with the, with everything that was going on in the pimp house. It's like, yeah, those are bad guys. And like, I can see what they had coming, but under the same token with the rules that we have and the system that we have, is it noble or is it right or where we fall on a line and that's when i got into like oh he is like he's he thinks he's one thing but he's turning into the other mm-hmm. you know yeah um so yeah that's why it, it and but it's once again i mean the, in most of these good movies too you put in some philosophical like kind of uh quandaries or, or ponderments here of like yeah what is what is right what is wrong is that good is that bad to me it doesn't feel like he's like necessarily being a full force of good it almost just feels like he's being a force of violence in that scene that's and i think that's what they're playing up to Mm -hmm. you know i just i heard you say like he just wants to shoot someone um because I, 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 I lean at it the other way. I don't know if it was necessarily just wants to shoot someone. I think he wanted to make change. Like, he wanted to do something heroic because he does shoot someone in the film. So, like, if that right. was his itch, unless he's, you know, not, like, turning it into, like, but if he was, like, a werewolf, like, bloodthirsty, you know, like, mm-hmm. I like oh, that felt good. I need to do more of that. Yeah. Which he totally could have, too. He know? totally could have. And it is one of those things where, like, uh, you know, not to, like, say 
that he just wanted to shoot somebody for the sake of shooting somebody, but the fact that he could like justify any case of it in his mind as yeah. like him doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that scene some uh, specifically some more. Uh, obviously, it being like the climax of the movie, it's like the most famous uh, out of this film. You could argue outside of the "you talking to me" oh, yeah. speech that he gives in the mirror. Yeah. Uh, that scene, and I'm sure like some people who are really into this movie already know this, but they had to uh, darken the colors to make it an R-rated movie and not uh, an NC-17. Because oh, the blood and the gore, the or? blood and the gore, the MPAA was r- worried that it was going to be too realistic looking. So they, <laughs> so they darkened the colors to yeah. make it so that it didn't look exactly like real blood. But I really like that decision. And Martin Scorsese says that he likes the way it turned out mm-hmm. even darker than, you know, most of the other instances in this movie, because like it separates that scene kind of and isolates it in a way where like that really feels like it's kind of on its own in its own dark little instance. And it, it just, to me, looks cooler. The fact that like, it's, <laughs> it's just the, the way it's dark. Nice and fr- critic approach on that. Like, I know. <laughs> it, looks, it looks, it looks so cool <laughs> the way he shoots them. But no, it, it like goes in line with like the actions that are taking place. Yeah. Like this is the darkest that Travis Bickle ever gets in the movie. 100%. So therefore, the visuals being dark really match that. I didn't even pick up on that. That's a fun little tidbit because mm-hmm. I was just I was really I mean with with the way that the movie shot. I mean, it's just being at night and stuff. There's always like it. It felt like the color schemes were always different because they were using almost like natural lighting. Yeah, you know, throughout the film. So, but that's a that's a. That's interesting. A lot of the use of like the nightlife and like the different neon signs and everything, like including the title opener, like that looks really good. But yeah, I just love the way that 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 scene is shot and the the visuals of it and how it turned out. It's funny that they're like a realistic because I I think that was like the only thing that felt outdated in the film. Interesting. Yeah, I think it it almost kind of gives it like a I don't want to say otherworldly, but there's almost like a dreamlike quality to it in a way especially with like the way things are like kind of going slower uh the different like kind of editing choices and like you know the dark colors of it itself uh it almost feels like it it couldn't be real sometimes you know like is this is this happening in his head or is this actually taking place yes and it's one of those pieces of doubt that to me doesn't even like let up in the last scene of the movie where like is this actually taking place that's which is another fun thing because i I didn't realize that this had a very big discussion on it yeah there's like a bit of a surrealist element to it especially with the ending we got to the ending and I, i jasmine i don't she watched a little bit of it with me. I wanted she might have nap, but I, I I completely thought that it, it, after that the shooting, everything else was a dream. Mm-hmm. I and, and I didn't realize that there's arguments for and against it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you could take the you could take the stance that he actually committed the violence, but then he you know was successful in shooting himself, and then everything that comes after is like a dream or a hallucination or you know i just did it as soon as i mean i was like he's arrested and he's just making all this up in his head as we kind of enter the last little thoughts that he have you know Mm -hmm. before the movie ends like yeah i love the idea and this is kind of my viewpoint of it is that like it all happens it all takes place he actually gets the letter from her parents you know she's actually back with them and she's okay and then he just returns to being a taxi driver, drives Betsy to her place, 
And then there's that scene at the end where he has that little like kind of paranoid moment looking in the rear view mirror and like turns it away. That to me, and this is like other people's interpretations too, so I'm not alone in this, is him not really coming out of this a different person. Like that's another great yeah. It's one of those things where like he's going to do the same thing again. Mm-hmm. He's going to keep being the same person. He's not getting better. You could argue that he's getting worse, and it's only going to keep going downhill from there. Yeah. So I, another, I, there's a, there's so many different ways you could interpret this. As soon as I I don't yeah, and it makes you wonder too. I mean, if he made it to the hospital or if he died on that couch. Let's talk about. There's a couple things I want to talk about before we wrap up, and this is gonna be a longer conversation. Sorry, it it's earned the right. It's earned the right, I would say. Uh, I want to talk about Jodie Foster, and I want to get your <laughs> thoughts on her because okay. there was a bit of a controversy around yeah. her casting as uh, a 12 year old prostitute. Yeah. Uh, but I think she does a great job in this movie. I think that her acting's great, and uh, she fits very well within the environment the world and the story mm-hmm. in my opinion she did a great job there was especially uh, for a child actress too i i read somewhere that they there was a prostitute that martin scorsese uh was friends with yeah well it was <laughs> hey, like pal <laughs> doing like uh finding someone for the character to study right mm-hmm. like so for yeah, jody yeah. foster to kind of and uh I, I think her name garth or something like that i can't remember the prostitute's name but anyways uh she she was a heroin addict right and mm-hmm. so and she was trying to to come on like squ- i think it said squell squeam i at first i thought i was like oh she's recovering now that i think about it, it's like oh no she just needed a fix and had to hold off on getting her fix yeah she would put sugar on her jet like on her toast and that's what you've watched jodie foster when she's eating the toast she takes some sugar and she starts dumping it on the toast. I did. I did think about that, I but was, I, I chalked it up as to like her being a kid and liking sugar. So what it was was Jodie Foster was studying this prostitute and like just being very observant. That when they would go and get food and stuff, and she had to hold off on her fix, she would do that. So Jodie Foster thinking that's what hookers do was did that with her toast. Just not even like. You that's, know, that's it's not incredible. part of the character. Yeah, it's just her like being observant, being twelve, and being like, "Well, that's if she's doing that, then that's probably what everyone does." Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, no, she did. She was great. She was fantastic. Yeah. It's a little that scene where they're getting breakfast is like my favorite that she's in in that yeah, movie. It's <laughs> yeah. I you know the one that I liked is the dance, uh, and it's just because of how fucking weird it is and how cynical people are, and it really. Uh, it almost gives, like you said, I mean, it feels almost noble or like um, justified for what Travis is about to do. Yeah. You got Sport in here who's totally one, taking advantage of a, of a you Who know. Who I a girl. always forget that that's Harvey Keitel. Yeah. I always forget that that's him. And then, too, like he totally brainwashes her, and you just see how sick it, like, how truly nasty that side of the world is yeah you know that he's it's all about money to him and him just being a player and like listen you're my favorite and then yeah it's it was gross it's really uh yeah i don't i i, I it's guess pretty visceral controversial maybe like i'm trying to think of the right word of like yeah and there was some like there's some uh controversy at the time of like her casting and like her character yeah. and her involvement in the story and like also uh, the end scene with the violence, people were uh, unhappy about her being a part of it. Her being in that scene, it. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. 
which I feel like, you know, nowadays that wouldn't be too much of an issue. You see like an R-rated movie with kids in it and like they see people getting shot all the time. But uh, back then, it's a little more telling like where people's thoughts were of that subject matter. Well, you got the MPA and they're trying to protect everyone's, you know, eyes from seeing too many hard things. So, um, yeah, emphasis on the hard. Yeah. Um, uh, she did a good job. I, I liked her. I mean, and it, it just ke- it adds more layers to the story. And mm-hmm. it really, I mean, it puts you in these kind of, you know, um, I don't know, maybe paradox, you know, just contradictions. Like, I keep thinking, like, there's one way to feel about it and there's one way to think about it. And it's a very mixed emotion of what to do, what's right and what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and I mean, and we're totally basing it off a dude that's just not there with his head. <laughs> you know? True, you yeah, know, which very is, unreliable. Yeah, which is really just funny to even think about. It's like, man, we're going off all this, so God knows what he was saying, yeah. if that's actually it. We're trusting his perspective on everything we're seeing in this movie, Yeah, which is maybe something we shouldn't be doing 100%, yeah. but, you know. it's fun. Comes with the territory. Yeah. Uh, and then I know you wanted to bring up Albert Brooks. I just, I... He's, I think, the, I thought his humor in this thing is the only thing that I really was just like... Why? I think it's kind of to me. It was sort of meant to be dumb and cheesy and unfunny. Like he's kind of meant to be a little dorky, but I don't know. I didn't have too much of an issue with him. No, I, I, you know, it's not like too much of an issue. It's just all every. I thought he had better lines in this thing, and then I watched this. I was like, yeah, not my, not my style. And I was like, I don't. And he, he's a comedian, so I mean, it's like at the time, like I wonder if that was the style of humor. Yeah, you know. So that's why that's the only thing when movies like when I see something get taken out because it's of the time and it takes me out because now I'm thinking about was this really what it was like and mm-hmm. this is what stand up in New York was like throws me off and it makes me a little upset. But no, outside of that, I mean, he was everyone acting wise in this. Everyone was fantastic. I agree. The only thing that really took me out of this movie, the only thing and it's so minor is you can tell that they had to uh, either reshoot some scenes or pick up some scenes that they hadn't filmed yet after he had shaved his head and like kind of had his hair grow back a little bit. I don't know if you noticed it too. Where, <laughs> no. um, so throughout the this, like I said, super fucking minor. I'm getting very nitpicky. Not really changing my rating from it at all. But I have thank to thank God out. that would be a bad one to be like, uh, yeah, De Niro's head. It'd be hair fucking petty, the, right? It'd be super petty. Uh, petty, or I would just wonder, like, all right, how else are you rating movies? Like, right. If you're focused on a guy's haircut at a certain point, I, I have to bring it up though because I did notice it. Uh, Travis throughout the movie, for the most part, has like pretty normal length hair. It's a little bit longer. It kind of like flows a little bit. He can comb yeah. it, right? Yeah. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, he shaves it into the mohawk and you see that in the shootout and that's kind of how it is until like he's released from the hospital and then his hair's normal again. There's a couple scenes specifically when he like keeps returning back to the, like the outdoor campaign where the Senator is like, they're having like the rally or whatever. Uh, he shows up and he's got this, like his hair for the most part is like closer to how his hair is normally in the film, except I can tell that it's cut shorter. And I feel like to me, I could easily tell that those scenes were probably filmed after he shaved his head and had his hair regrow back, but it wasn't like quite at the length it was when he was filming most of this movie. 
right? Like, I don't know. I, I just <laughs> noticed it a lot this time, and maybe I'm fucking crazy. I don't know, but... I wouldn't say crazy. It's just a weird uh, nitpick to pick up on. Well, it's it's a nitpick to pick up on because I would notice it every time. I would notice it every time his hair was like that, and I could see that it was like slightly shorter than when it normally was throughout most of the movie. Yeah, I, got, I don't know. That, that's like a- I said, it's not affecting my rating. I acknowledge that it's nitpicky, right? But I have to point it out. And I feel like maybe if you watch this again, you'll notice it too. And I won't look like such a fucking lunatic right now. <laughs> I, yeah, but I mean, like, like I don't know. I The nitpicky things that I pick out, I don't necessarily think are based on. And one, I was involved with the story. So this is the second time you've seen it. So usually eyes wander around a little bit more. That's why I'm kind of like maybe mm-hmm. on a second viewing I would. But I don't think so. Because like, like Andy Dufresne said in Shawshank, how often do you look at a man's shoes? How often do you look at a man's hair? Apparently, you know? I look at it too much. Yeah. Well, like I said, though, it's your second time seeing it. I, I that's why I'm trying to. I'm not trying to go too hard on like, man, that's that's lunatic. But like, eyes wander. Like, you know, I'm trying to think. I was watching another movie for uh, second or third time. I remember what? I, oh, Inglorious Bastards. I had on. Yeah. And you, you know, it's all right. I know what's going on. I know the lines. Let me look around to see the set. Let's mm-hmm. look around to see if there's anyone like scratching their ass. You know, like. Or if there's nothing, something that's going to take me out of it. So I definitely see it. It's just a funny. That literally, like I never said. Never heard anyone ever say they picked up on a <laughs> reshoot hairstyle. That's literally the only thing. The mm-hmm. only thing. That's like really the I the feel soul, like you're trying like, really hard to justify like this isn't that bad of a. This is the only thing I don't like about the film. I'm trying really hard to justify not looking insane right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I gave you the grace. Not to say like it's all on me, but I think there's grace with the second viewing because there's more that you pick up on. Maybe I'm shouting into the sky. Yeah. I don't know. But well, I mean, like, dude, if I turn this thing on, I'm like, yeah, man. Like, no, it was down like two, three inches. You're like, huh, eight out of ten now. Yeah. <laughs> it was out of ten. but I, I'm just glad you had the disclaimer. This isn't affecting my rating. Like, <laughs> I had to throw oh, that wow, in there. Oh, wow, yeah. Like, I wonder if Kyle knocked this down a full star because of the reshoot haircut. I had to throw that in there so I knew you wouldn't throw your water bottle at me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we're kind of getting towards the end of uh, this discussion, but I kind of want to go through my notes just Do to it, make yeah. sure there's nothing Knock I missed. I only got one fun tidbit, and that kind of that might lead into the questions. So uh, this is De Niro and Scorsese reuniting after Mean Streets. Uh, we touched on Paul Schrader. Uh, Chris Christopherson is mentioned by Betsy to Travis. Uh, Chris Christopherson was in Scorsese's previous film, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. So it's kind of like a little Easter egg thing that he threw in. Uh, Yeah, casting Jodie Foster was controversial. Uh, I'm going to bring this up. We don't have to talk about it too much. Uh, Partially inspired John Hinckley Jr. to try and assassinate Ronald Reagan. Hinckley Jr. had a fascination with Jodie Foster. Oh, I didn't know the Foster. I knew about the Reagan part. Yep. I don't know the whole story. I know that he got a hold of Jodie Foster's phone number one time and he called her and she picked up and he started talking to her and she thought it was like a prank call or like that he was being so ridiculous that she started laughing at him. And then that kind of like really motivated him to do what he did. Taxi driver, Reagan. Taxi driver, Reagan, uh, Jodie Foster. And I think I might be misremembering this, but catch her in the rye might have told him to shoot ronald reagan i don't know okay uh this was boo Good thing it wasn't his cat right or dog yeah it was just the president of the united states <laughs> no i'm saying like summer of sam his dog talked to him 
Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. that's what I'm saying. I'm glad it. You know, those normal thoughts. I wasn't Catch sure what you, you read there. A, you read a book, you know, and it's like, oh, that told me to kill the president, not like, you know, my Kill turtle. Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Uh, this was booed at Cannes for graphic violence. Yep. Uh, Scorsese changed the color of the grading of the last film, uh, last shootout. Yep. Uh, Bickle's mohawk meant he was ready to go into battle, was a sign recognized by Vietnam War vets that they were ready to kill. So that was a thing where I think uh, Scorsese consulted a a Vietnam War vet on set who told them that if someone had a mohawk or they shaved their head into a mohawk, that meant that they were ready to kill someone. Oh, okay. And so he kind of like took inspiration and applied it to his character. That's nice, though, because I wonder, I asked Jasmine watching, I was like, I just don't know why. I was like, maybe character transformation to show like he's finally reached that level, but... Mm -hmm. That's a fun one. Yeah. And then that was the last one I had that we already, you know, that we didn't touch on already. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had Paul Schrader. Um, the yep. one fun thing that I found out that, um, well, eventually, I mean, it could be my listener question. Um, this was going to be turned into a video game. There's a trailer out. That's how far they got. It looks like a rock star. I watched the trailer. What, uh, when was it supposed 2006. to be? Oh, wow. Yeah. And I watched the trailer on it, and it looks like, you know, GTA. It looks like a GTA knockoff. Oh, yeah. It's it's a fun... You kind of watch it, and it's a little fun to watch. And it's like, man, I wonder what that game would have been like. They got... Dude, That's wacky. They got as far as making a trailer. So that thing had to have been pretty damn close to being done. Yeah. And I wonder what stopped them from releasing it. <laughs> I I might be researching more on that because like I was I was like very fascinated. I'm that. looking into that myself too. It's at the time period where like they felt every movie ever needed a video game version of it. Yeah, remember like you had Space Jam, Independence Day, Star Wars. There's like a thing video game. Played that, yeah. That was a that was a tragic one. Yeah. Um, every movie ever needs its own video game, dude. Well, and it led me into like what what movies would be fun to be turned into video games though Mm -hmm. true you know like that could be a question yeah so that if you if you come up with an answer let me know because i i you know i i i said it and i was like i guess i mean taxi driver might be fun because it could definitely it looks like it took a gta vibe with it Mm -hmm. and they were just gonna make you like the whole thing is like him going through like all the scenes or him beating the shit out of people. Yeah. And it's a weird, like, I wonder what they would have. Maybe, know. maybe they thought it would have been like too. actually it leads into your dream sequence. Violent. Like, uh, you know, yeah, he end of the movie and said, end goes, of the movie. It's his video game. <laughs> it turns into a video game. He went the wrong way. That's where the story goes. Health. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is all a fucking hallucination. Yeah, it's a fever it's a dream. Sequel. We don't want to make a movie sequel. We just felt like we come out with a video game. Yeah. And have a nice tie in ending there. Yeah. If you like the lore, check this out. Yeah. Uh, was there anything else before we get into our rating? Mm. This is a good long discussion. Yeah, it was, and there's there's plenty of stuff out there, so we could keep going on it. But no, I think I'm good. I, I mean, literally could keep talking about it. Yeah, but yeah, we can move on. Oh, if I had to guess where your score is, uh, well, I think you're going first on this one. Yeah, uh, you know, very curious. Well, I I have such a hard time, and this thing may change. All right, uh, I am a nine out of ten right now. Mm-hmm. And literally only a nine out of ten because of rewatchability. Because of the hair. Oh yeah, that. yeah. No, well I know why you're a nine out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I already said a disclaimer. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Get off my a, ass. Uh, 
Yeah, no, I have literally. Well, so I get done with that. I'm like, man, pretty good, pretty good. You know, nine out of ten. And then I'm like, today I'm like, all right, like I'm kind of like, all right, yeah, yeah. And then I'm thinking more about it and the the uh, the, t- the tones and the sounds and the the air. Like it just looks so. Those are my favorite types of. I think that's why I like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's that natural lighting, going down the strip, being a part, immersed in the world, and making the world the world. It's not living on stage, you know. It's not being in these sets. It's actually being immersed in these real life environments, you know, with the characters. It gives it so much more of a better feel for the film. Hundred um, percent. So, I I'm gonna say nine out of ten, but like literally, if you talk to me tomorrow, it could be a ten out of ten. Like I I I'm so close. If I if I'm still like man, like more thoughts pop up about the the thing the movie. It's very yeah, it's just really well done, and this is a great movie that you could sit down with someone and just ham it out. Yeah, you know, if you're not too uncomfortable with everything that's taking place, because I'll tell you right now, twelve year old prostitute shootings and. You know, scum of the earth and killing a senator. Like, know your audience when you watch this movie. With yeah, people. they might rub people the wrong way. So, uh, but if you find out, you know, like-minded individual that like the film, like this is a good one to sit down because, like, even the end that we didn't really t- we just touched on. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure there's merits both ways, and those are the to me those are the best movies of when when it's over with. There's still talking points about how you perceived it. Yeah. Watch this with people who think violence and shooting is cool, guys. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. And don't mind bad haircuts. And don't mind bad haircuts. Uh, this is my favorite Scorsese movie. Uh, it's easily my number one, especially after the second viewing. I love it as a character study. I love the way it's filmed. It's put together. It was very ahead of its time and has that timeless quality to it that I can keep going back to. I'm excited to show people that haven't seen this and to get their <laughs> thoughts on it. Uh, specifically thinking about Megan. You just said know your audience. I know. I know my audience <laughs> will experience this movie. Uh, we underline One way the or no. another. <laughs> we underline the no. You have the I in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's not I know the audience. It's I know the audience. I know the audience <laughs> has no choice in the matter. Doesn't that sound a little different? Uh, <laughs> we are the people. Yeah. We are the people. No, uh... I had this at a 9 out of 10, but the second viewing, it really came around for me, especially. So, 10 out of 10. Wow. I thought you were going to go 8 out of 10. It's 7 out of 10 because <laughs> of the haircut. Yeah. It did affect my rating after all, fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you, you pieces of shit. Got all of you assholes. You thought I wasn't knocking it down. You thought April Fool's was four months away? <laughs> Joke's on you, sons of bitches. All right. Uh, speaking of our audience and possibly alienating them, <laughs> yeah, uh, we got some questions that we can answer. I don't know if we're going to get through all of them because we are already at over the two hour mark, but uh, we can see how far we get. Sure. And then if need be, we can save them for next time. Yeah. So uh, this first one, and I feel like this is maybe a question we've answered before, but maybe we can rack our brains a little bit, is from Joanne, my mom. And she asks, what's your favorite animated children's movie and why? I feel like this is a question that uh, is, is tailored. Taxi driver, like, is this a Jodie Foster poll? Yeah. <laughs> Just remember, kids movie are pure with, and innocent. <laughs> movie with children in it. Yeah. If that's the case, then Funny Games. Uh, oh my god. No, uh, I feel like this is kind of tailored towards you, especially since you know you have offspring. Low. I have no offspring. Yeah. Oh. Um, except for Piper, I guess. So we have to go super ironic, where I give a dark 
comedic movie, and then you go with the lighthearted Finding Nemo. I mean, you know, yeah. however you want to tailor it. Um, it's up to you. Favorite favorite animated film with kids in it? What's your favorite animated children's movie and why? So I'm assuming animated movie made for kids. Okay. Do you have you got one ready to go? I've I've got some that I can shoot well, off. You rattle off some because I'm gonna try to think. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just gonna rattle off ones that I grew up with. So like, Monsters Inc., Bugs yeah, Life, yeah. a lot of Pixar stuff. Yeah. Um, All dogs go to heaven. Uh, is, oh yeah, that is animated. You know what movie I was really into? Fox and the Hound. Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, Cats don't dance. You ever oh. watch that movie? Nope. Uh, do you know about it? <laughs> nope. Uh, it, it was kind of an obscure one. I don't think it was Disney exactly. I think it was a Don Bluth thing, where it was this anthropomorphic cat who really loved to uh, dance, dance on stage. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, you, you see where I'm going I'm with it. I'm picking up on it. Yeah. yeah, and then he has to like kind of like wrangle this like downtrodden uh, Broadway troupe that's like made up of all these other different animals. So like there's a female cat, and then there's like an alligator, there's like a bear or some shit, there's like a gorilla. And then like they're being led by this like human little girl who's like a monster. Like she presents herself as something that is delightful and cheerful and oh whimsical and oh she's so lovely and cute and sweet and then you get to know her and she's like an actual like villainous piece of shit and uh i don't know i really liked that movie i thought it was a fun nicely animated time so i guess that would be my answer great character study <laughs> travis bickle. travis bickle pops in the movie <laughs> and starts shooting the people on stage uh <laughs> yeah um I don't know. I'm Pixar. I don't. I. I don't think that there's. There's so much stuff out there now. I mean, like classic Disney too, like Lion King and, uh, you know, all the others. I'm more Pixar. Like I, I my yeah. the the nostalgia that I have of, the films. Like I see that stuff up, and I don't know if it's the 2D element, you know, or, um, maybe I should say 2d I mean but you know I mean, fuck hand drawn am I right yeah like that's where I'm at like I don't I mean like Lion, pieces of shit Lion Glad King's it's fucking still dead. good like uh I don't know Aladdin's yes. all right I don't know so I'm more into the Pixar scene like, yeah I'm trying to think of like a fun I don't know if there's a fun movie that I could just the Iron Giant um is a good one um but like when it comes to kids sentiment and wanting to show them something like I to that to me that with uh, Everything that I see now, I'm like, that's just so outdated, you know? Like, What's the most recent uh, animated kids movie that you enjoy, I would say? Recent? Yeah. Like? Like one that's just come out, like, the most recently that you watched that you were like, okay, I actually like that as a movie. No, I mean, I like the movies. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't... All of them. I, okay. Pixar comes out with stuff. I, I watch it. And I, I watched uh, Coco recently. I really like that. Yeah. I mean, Enchanted would probably feel good. And I I might be getting mixed up with the Disney and the Pixar, like, on what does what. Um, but I, what I'm saying is, like, the, the, the Cinderella's, the Snow White's, the Lion King's, the Aladdin's, like, that stuff, I don't hold the nostalgia that I thought I would have to want to show my offspring. Yeah, you know, so like it to me, it's more so of like what's just kind of coming out because, and I think the difference is, we only had a small selection. Like you weren't watching a kids movie until Disney came out with whatever yeah. in '98. Mm -hmm. You know, like, 
Like you're just kind of you had to wait. And Disney kind of had the market corner too, especially with like American audiences. Yeah, like there's just not much you're getting into. But now there's so much stuff out there. It's like you know, I th- yeah. it's all good. And I think I, I I any Pixar film I would show Willow and me and Preston. I try to show him as much as I can. But we're drifting more into live action, not Disney live action, but you know, like Godzilla and the fun monster ones. Yeah. You're getting, uh, you're getting, into, you're gonna get into the PMC territory at some point with uh, your kids. Oh, yeah. that'll be fun. Uh, well, one of them will hopefully like it. One of them, no, no idea. No idea. Well, yeah. they're pretty much a blank slate at this point. Yeah. Uh, our next question comes from Connie, kind of in line with you know childhood uh, thread that we have going on here. But she asks, "What was the one movie that scared you the most when you were little?" Hmm. That one I have a hard time thinking of because I just avoided all that stuff. So I can't even like think of a specific one that comes to mind, I guess. But I guess it could be like any movie that like maybe <laughs> maybe your parents were watching and you were like, "Oh no, this is too scary for me." Um boy howdy. Where do you guys want me to go? Uh so when I was real little, um the the Brave Little Toaster scared the shit out of me. I I thought of one. That the brave little toaster. Um, when I was at my godparents' house, they were watching uh, Dennis Leary and like Creep Show or Tales from the Crypt. He's fighting some vampires, and there's a scene where a vampire is it's de- de- dressed up as a whorehouse. Mm-hmm. So he brings his buddy there, and there's a vampire that is getting uh, frisky with one of the guys. Not like anything that's graphic or anything like that, but she sticks her tongue through his ear, and it goes out the other ear to kill him. Saw that when I was six. I was like, boy, I didn't know that that could happen. So that kind of scared me. Uh, and then The Rock, uh, when that came out in 97, 98, and the, one of the opening scenes is uh, the guy's dropping one of those uh, little parcels of atomic energy or whatever, and it melts his face off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Mars Attacks was kind of scary when they were turning everyone into bones. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I thought of a couple actually, Mm -hmm. and, uh, one of them is, uh, going to be a source for a nice story. So, uh, the first one I thought of was, and it's kind of in line with Brave Little Toaster. I thought of a Don Bluth cartoon, uh, the American tale. Uh, have you seen that one? It's a little, little mouse boy. It's, uh, it's kind of like an analogy for like the Holocaust. Oh, because okay. I think his name is like Mausewitz or something, and they have to like immigrate to America to like escape the the like evil cats or whatever. But then they encounter other cats in their destination, and at the end of the movie, uh, light spoilers for American Tale, I guess. Uh, the mice come up with like this robotic contraption of like a giant mouse, yeah, and they release it, and it's like the scariest fucking thing when you're like three years old watching that movie because Probably like it's got like six it's got like the roar of like a a, a godzilla basically and it's yeah. got like red glowing eyes and it's like bigger than all the other characters like it's the size of a building compared to them and that that shit was kind of terrifying and it yeah. moved slowly so like it kind of had that extra the creepy factor claymation and jolty herky jerky things it are... was like kind of like a blend of like 2d and 3d animation so it like looked really uncanny too the yeah, the 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 Narfo the Garfunk with in airhead or coneheads. Mm-hmm. I think there's a thing like that in one of the Star Wars films where it's almost like claymation or kind of C- not CGI but like 
put this thing together against a backdrop. Yeah. Yeah, those things are terrifying. And then there was one movie. I don't remember. I don't even remember what the movie's called. I just remember kind of the scene. But, like, it was a movie with a giant snake eating people that my dad was watching. And Anaconda? I don't even. I don't think it was Anaconda. Because I feel like I would have been old enough at that point to not be scared by that movie but it must have been like some other big snake movie he was watching when i was like younger like probably like seven or eight or something okay and then finally this one this is a fun story so i remember specifically when i was little there was a scene in a movie that my dad was watching where this guy is like trying to hold a door. He's like in a cabin and it's like kind of an outdoorsy movie, but it's like being presented really in a scary way. Yeah. And this guy is like holding back this door and something's like breaking it down. And on the other side is this giant fucking bear and he breaks the door down and the bear starts like jumping on the door that the guy is underneath. Like he's trapped underneath the door. Squishing the guy. Squishing the guy. Yeah. And I remember that being like a really scary fucking scene. Oh yeah. And thinking like, this is, terrifying i don't know what this movie is i don't know like what's going on here but that memory has always been like in my head yep like i've never forgotten it so the other day probably like a few weeks ago actually i was you know typing that into google trying to describe the scene and i found it and it's not a horror movie it is a comedy called the great outdoors with john candy and dan Aykroyd. oh my god and the scene is played for laughs it's played for goofs like, Dan Aykroyd's kind of laughing at the fact that John Candy's being crushed by this goofy fucking bear yeah. that knocked the door down. And you're terrified. I, I completely misremembered that scene as something that was scary, when in fact it was supposed to be funny. Have you seen it since then? Or? I watched. The, I looked up a video on YouTube, and it's the, it's the same scene. So you're, are you still terrified? I Always. <laughs> <laughs> it still gives me nightmares. Yeah. But no, it's like... I completely misremembered it as a kid. Like my memory just like created this narrative that it was uh, a scarier scene than it actually was. I believe it. I mean, Mars, Mars attacks is a comedy. I haven't seen it since uh, it came out. Mm -hmm. We did it at the hotel. We rented it and it was a late night. And you know, have you seen Mars attacks? Uh, I've heard of it. I have not seen it. Yeah. There's a Martians come and they zap people. Like when they zap them, they turn into, they just disintegrate, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's supposed to be like a very, it's a spoof, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, that scared the shit. I didn't, I, those people, you know, when you see like, like death at a very young age, no matter what, I mean, that guy should have died, you know? The, yeah. John like, Candy being crushed by a bear should have uh, resulted yeah. in him not being alive. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, uh, it, <laughs> I guess when you're older, it plays off for laughs or like, man, that was crazy, huh? Yeah. Like if you see it at the wrong age. Yeah. Hey, how wacky is that, eh? Nudge, nudge, wink, yeah. wink. Um, and then I'm thinking we can do maybe one more question. So the questions that we'll save for next episode are from Zach and Wes. Okay. So I'm going to save those for episode 63. Perfect. But this last one I think we can rattle off pretty quick from Levi. And he just simply asks, favorite Quentin Tarantino movie and why? Mm. I can go first. Yeah, I already know. It's kind of a cliched answer. I feel like this is a lot of people's favorite, but it's my favorite for a reason. Django Unchained. Mm -hmm. I love that movie. I think it combines all the best stuff that I like about Tarantino into one movie. And I think that it is uh, his most well-rounded movie as far as like what I like to see from him. Yeah. It's a fair answer. That one. I mean, yeah. But it's Tarantino as you can get with a actually good storyline and good characters. Uh, Mine's once upon a time in Hollywood. 
a I very, saw that coming. <laughs> well, a close second. I'm like sitting there. I was like, dude, I love fucking Inglorious Bastards so much. Um, and honestly, like if I had to choose one of the, over the other, I'm pretty sure I'm going with Once Upon a Time. I had that on for the New Year movie. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, I got I, I got, you know, I got an hour and 30 into it and I'm like, I got to go to bed and I didn't know how far I was because mm-hmm. it's a great film and you just get lost in it. And it's like, man, like if I let this roll, there's still another hour 20 left that I'm going to watch. I had to shut it off. Yeah. Uh, for the reasons why I like it, I just love the character. I mean, I love the characters and I love the setting of it. The and, vibes. And you know, to me, it's about as grounded as Tarantino's been with his own... It's his most grounded movie. I mean, but his own kind of spin on on, on what happens, and it's so fun to think about the ending. I'm not going to talk about the ending, but the possibilities of what could... what The outcomes of the ending of the film and what happens with the characters. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a fun... It's always fun thoughts, and there's so much... There's a little bit more... There's some deeper elements into it that you could really play off with, uh, with your own theories. Yeah. A hundred percent. I have my ranking. Do you want me to rattle that off real quick? Sure. Uh, so disclaimer, I haven't seen Hateful Eight, Jackie Brown, or uh, Death Proof. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those are the only ones of his that I haven't checked out yet. But uh, just to let people know. So my number one, Django. Number two, what would you guess my number two is? Inglorious. Oh. Uh, no. No, my number two is Kill Bill, Volume One. <laughs> Figures. Yeah, I know, right? I'm a Kill Bill slut. Uh, my number three, Kill Bill, Volume Two, Pulp Fiction. Oh, you son of a bitch! I know. Number four, Kill Bill, Volume Two. <laughs> You're just gonna keep guessing that. Reservoir Dogs. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wrong. Hey, listen, what? My number two through four spots are all nine out of tens. I'm just letting you know right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number five. Kill Bill Volume 2. Inglorious Bastards. Dude. Uh, number six. Reservoir Dogs. Yes. All right. Hey, number seven. Uh, Death Proof. No. Kill Bill Volume 2. Yay. Right. You, so you got, got it. seven of them? Yes. I think I've seen all of his. I, I, I have... It, for me, I mean, it literally, it's gonna pro- it'd go Once Upon a Time and Glorious, Pulp Fiction, Django, Reservoir Dogs, um, Kill Bill. No, maybe. <laughs> really, yeah. it's that low, dude. The la- the last four. So you got Kill the two Kill Bills. You got Death Proof, and you got um, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. I would probably have Kill Bill above Jackie Brown just because of the cinematic element of it. And I really, I mean, the movie, like Tarantino, what he does in the film. But I like the, like, dude, that's my, my maestro. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it just does not resonate with me of everything going on. Yeah. Um, so I would, I think I'd have that above Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown's, a, Jackie Brown's just a fun, like, um, small stakes movie. Mm-hmm. You know, but it would check that lower out. impact the characters. I just don't think the acting was necessarily there, you know? Okay. So, uh, and then Death Proof and then probably Kill Bill Volume 2. Death Proof is the one with the, yeah, Planet Terror is the zombie one. Death Proof is with the card. Death Proof has some fun, tension-filled moments. Yeah, and, I'll check it out eventually. Yeah, I tried to watch it again. And like with the Tarantino films, man, they're so like, 
I definitely know that I'm not the biggest Kill Bill fan. So, oh, it, really? I mean, they, they could be 9 and 10 or 8 and 9 for me, however the... So, I don't know. Death Proof is directed by him, right? I know they did the double yeah. feature with it, Planet Terror. And yeah, double feature like, with Rodriguez doing Tan- Planet Terror. He's still got one more coming out, right? Yep. Tenth and final one. or his... supposed to be called The Critic, I believe. Oh, God. I can't wait to see that. Just... There's uh, there's rumors circulating that he's aiming to get, uh, I think his name is Paul Walter Hauser or something. Uh-huh. The guy who was in Richard Jewell. The big guy. Richard Jewell himself. I don't know. That's like the only thing I can think of him being What's in. Richard Jewell? It's uh, the Clint Eastwood directed movie about uh, the guy who... I don't even remember what he does, but like he's a real life guy who like makes an impact in the news and makes a story out of it. And then like there's a whole media circus about it. Uh, it came out, I want to say within the last four or five years. Okay. But that's like his biggest movie that he's been in since. Got it. Yeah. So, uh, cool. There's our little Tarantino corner for the episode. Uh, last bit of business before we get to wrap up. Yeah. I get to make. A recommendation. Yay. Hey, guys. This is Kyle from the podcast. I apologize for cutting in during this conversation. You're about to find out what the film recommendations from myself are going to be, which is the most exciting thing that I think you'll have experienced this past week. But I have to make this message because it kind of clarifies what's going to happen for episode 63 coming out. So instead of the recommendation that I make for episode 63, which would have been a double feature of The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, we're actually going to have Sam back on as a guest for our next episode, and we're going to cover the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. So those will be the films that we'll cover in episode 63, and then we will save my double feature recommendations of Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile for episode 64. I just wanted to throw this in there just to let you guys know, but I'm going to keep the rest of the conversation that took place in this episode. I figured it's extra content. You get to hear me and Mac shoot the shit a little bit more and uh, gives you a bit of insight into what is on the docket for the Neon Crew podcast. So anyway, again, I apologize for interrupting, but we will go back to our regularly scheduled programming. So I got a question for you. Okay. Uh... Are you feeling a newer release with one that I recommend, or are you feeling uh, me recommending a double feature, two movies that would go well together? So we could do two movies that go well together. Okay, I um, will save. I'll save the one that I have for next time. So unless you wanted to talk about a newer movie, that's what I'm curious. I don't know what really what's grabbing people's attention. Um. Well, if you decide to see Ferrari, we could talk about that. Ooh. Okay. Otherwise, uh, are you serving it up on a platter right now? What we're, like the options are? I'm, I'm just giving you the uh, the choice. So let me look up what's in uh, the cinemas right now. Uh, cinema. You'd want to see two new movies, or you'd want to pair Ferrari with something. I'd pair Ferrari with something, or so, like another new movie with something, or I would recommend. A double feature of two older movies. Interesting. Yep. That are different from the single recommendation I would pair with the new one. <laughs> if that is at all making sense. Yep. So we got, uh, yeah, there's Ferrari. If you see Iron Claw, we could talk about that. I know I'm getting pushed on that. Uh, there is 
The Boy and the Heron. I mean, I'm always going to recommend that to oh. people. Listen, that is a great fucking movie. Um, otherwise, uh, probably those three. Let's... um. Unless well, you wanted to talk about Godzilla it, minus one, but I feel like there's not that much to talk about with that one. Hey, no, <laughs> it's a good uh, no. There's not. It's just a good film. Yeah, that's but, what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah, it's um. Anyways, well, it depends if we have Sam on the show or not. So I would let's. That is true. You we know did what? talk about that before. Let's let's do let's just do the double feature. Um, there's okay. not out. There's not a lot out in cinema right now, and the ones I mean. If I go and if I have time to go and see the stuff, you know, I mean that's the other thing I'm thinking about. Um, but I'm I'm more interested in the double feature and hopefully we get some. I like these juicy topics. Okay, let me look up some info about it and uh, <laughs> we'll go two French here. dystopian films. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, what, what uh, did you say something about new films? Yeah, yeah. I'm recommending. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's watch. Yeah, so. Uh, these are two films from the same director. Interesting. Uh, came out in the nineties. Old films. Come on, dude. I know, right? The fuck. I'm <laughs> such a fucking duffer, aren't I? Um, like I said, two films from the same director. Both came out relatively the same time. Uh, so I have to like keep switching between these two movies. One of them from 1994. The other one from 1999. Who are the? T- what's the same director? Frank Darabont. Darabont. They're both adaptations of Stephen King films. Or Stephen King novels, I should say. Or novellas. So we got Shawshank and we got The Green Mile. I'm recommending a double feature of The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Shawshank Redemption I've seen multiple times. The Green Mile I have not seen. Okay. Um, What about you? I've seen both. Okay. I mean, and I... You know, I don't mind getting some Shawshank in there. I figured I'd throw this in because it's one that is a good classic that I think would let's get do, people involved in listening. So I, let's do it because I know I'm also thinking about my fiance, and I think that she will like both these films. And I also dropped the "How often do you look at someone's shoes?" line on her. It is one of the things I live by in this world mm-hmm. when I'm doing things. Of how often do you actually yeah, you, notice? You brought up Shawshank this episode. That's, That's what I'm of... saying. Like, dude, that line, when I heard that line when I was on my summer internship, it really stood out with me of like, he's got a point. Mm-hmm. And I want to remember this point because, like, how often do people notice these small part of the scenery, you know, things that subtly change? Yeah. And I love it. So I don't mind getting Shawshank in. Green Mile. We'll watch it again, yeah. I'm curious as to how Green Mile will go. I know it's one of those things where like it's so in the pop culture that I kind of know a little bit about it. Yeah. I kind of know what to expect, but I'm still eager to jump in. And then and, Shawshank, I haven't seen in a while, so I'm curious to rewatch that. Same. I have, That's one thing, too. With the new movie lens that I have or, or we have, I think there'll be two fun conversations. So, that, um, yeah. I think so. Cool. Well, if you guys uh, don't want to be spoiled for The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, both directed by Frank Darabont, be sure to check those films out before episode 63. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Neon Crew Podcast. You can find us at neoncrewpodcast.com. We're also on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. 
Check out our various social medias on Facebook and YouTube community page. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already, and give us some good ratings on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Shout out to Gideon for doing our music and to Lauren for designing our logo. You can find their uh, various pages, their social medias in the description of this episode. And uh, yeah, again, thank you guys so much. We're going to episode 63. That'll be pretty epic. Diving into Stephen King adaptations. Arguably some of the more well-regarded ones, but I guess we'll be the determiners of that. You haven't seen Silver... Well, you have seen Silver Bullet. I have. And I... Anyway... Stephen King rankings coming up next. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) I've... I don't know how many Stephen King movies I've seen. I'd have to think about it. Yeah. It's more than four. I know that. Okay. It's more than four. Well, you'll have it queued up next time. Right? <laughs> of an extensive list. Uh, what do we say at the end of the episodes, McLean? <laughs> I don't know, man. WWTHD. Bye, everyone.